Story number 37, The Stolen Car, from James Harriet's Dog Stories. Oh, Mr. Harriet, Mrs. Ridge said delightedly, somebody stole our car last night. She looked at me with a radiant smile. Huh. I stopped in the doorway of her house. Mrs. Ridge, Ridge, I'm terribly sorry. How? Yes, yes. Oh, I can't wait to tell you. Her voice trembled with excitement and joy. There must have been some prowlers around here last night, and I'm such a silly about leaving the car unlocked. I see how unfortunate. But do come in, she giggled. Forgive me for keeping you standing on the step, but I am all of a diter. I went past her into the lounge. Well, it, it is very understandable. It must have been quite a shock. Shock? Oh, but you don't see what I mean. It's wonderful, eh? Yes, of course, she clapped her hands and looked up at the ceiling. Do you know what happened? Well, yes, I said. You just told me. No, I haven't told you half. You haven't? No. But do sit down. I know you'll want to hear all about it. To explain this, I have to go back 10 days to the afternoon when Mrs. Ridge came tearfully, came, ran tearfully up the steps of Skeldale House, our clinic. My little dog, my little dog had an incident, she gasped. I looked past her. Where is he? In the car. I didn't know whether I should move, in, move him. I crossed the pavement and opened the door. Her caring terrier, Joshua, lay very still on a blanket on the back seat. What happened, I asked. She put a hand over her eyes. Oh, it was terrible. You know, he often plays in the farmer's field opposite our house. Well, about half an hour ago, he started to chase a rabbit and ran under the wheels of a tractor. I looked from, from her face to the motionless animal and back again. Did the wheels go over him? She nodded as his tears streamed down her cheeks. I took her by the arm. Mrs. Rich, this is important. Are you absolutely sure that the wheels passed right over his body? Yes, I am quite certain. I saw it happen. I couldn't believe he'd be alive when I ran to pick him up. She took a long breath. I don't suppose I can live after that. He can live after that, can he? I didn't want to depress her, but it seemed impossible that a small dog like this could survive being crushed under the great weight. Massive internal damage would be inedible, apart altogether from broken bones. <clears throat> it was sad to see the little sandy form lying still on unheeding when I had watched him so often running and leaping in the fields. <clears throat> Let's have a look at him, I said. I climbed into the car and sat down in the seat beside him. With the utmost care, I felt my way over the limbs, expecting every mo moment to feel the creptus, which would indicate a fracture. I put my hand underneath him very slowly, supporting his weight every inch of the way. The only time Joshua showed any reaction was when I moved the pelvic girdle. The best sign of all was that the pinkness of the mucous membrane of eye and mouth, and I turned to Mrs. Ridge rather, rather more hopefully. 
Miraculously, he doesn't seem to have any internal hemorrhage. And, and there are no limb bones broken. I'm pretty sure he has a fractured pelvis, but that's not so bad. She drew her fingers over the smears on her cheek and looked at me wide-eyed. You really think he has a chance? Well, I don't want to raise your hopes unduly, but at this moment, I can't find any sign of severe injury. But it isn't... It doesn't seem possible, I shrugged. I agree, it doesn't, but if he has got away with it, I can only think it was because he was on soft ground, which yielded as the wheel squeezed him down. Anyway, let's get him x-rayed to make sure. At that time, in common with most large animal practices, we didn't have an x-ray machine, but the local hospital helped us out in times of need. I took Joshua around there and the picture confirmed my diagnosis of pelvic fracture. There's not much I can do, I said to this, his mistress. This type of injury usually heals itself. He'll probably have difficulty in standing on his limb, hind legs for a while and for several weeks he'll be weak in the rear end, but with rest and time he ought to recover. Oh, marvelous! She watched me place the little animal back on the car seat. I suppose it's just a matter of waiting then, she said. That's what I hope. My fears that Joshua might have some eternal damage were finally allied. When I saw him two days later, his membranes were a rich, deep pink, and all natural functions were operating. Mrs. Rich, however, was still worried. He's such a sorrowful little thing, she said. Just look at him. He's lifeless. Well, you know, he must be bruised and sore after the squashing he had, and he was very shocked, too. You must be patient. As I spoke, the little dog stood up, wobbled a few feet across the carpet, and flopped down again. He showed no interest in me or his surroundings. Before I left, I gave his mistress some salicylate tablets to give him. These will ease his comfort, I said. Let me know if he doesn't improve. She did let me know within 48 hours. I wish you'd come and see Joshua again, she said on the phone. I'm not all that high happy about him. The little animals, as before, I looked down at him as he lay de dejectedly on the rug, head on his paws looking into the fireplace. Come on, Joshua, old lad, I said. You must be feeling better now. I bent and rubbed my fingers along the wiry coat but neither word or gesture made any impression. I might as well not have been there. Mrs. Ridge turned to me worthily. That's, that's what he's like all the time. And you know, he is how he is normally. Yes, he's always been a ball of fire. Again, I recall him jumping around my legs, gazing up at me eagerly. It's very strange. And another thing she went on, he never utters a sound. And you know, that worries me more than anything because he's always been such a good little watchdog we used to hear him barking when the early post came he barked at the milk boy the dustman everybody he was never a yappy dog but he let us know when anybody was around yes that was another thing i remembered the atonement of sound from within whenever i rang the doorbell and now there's just this dreadful silence people come and go but he never even looked up she shook her head slowly oh if only he barked just once 
I think it would mean he was getting better. It probably would, I said. Is there something else wrong with him, do you think, she asked. I thought for a moment or two, no, I am convinced there isn't, not physically anyway. He's had a tremendous fright, and he has withdrawn him within himself. He'll come out of it in time. As I left, I had the feeling I was trying to convince myself as much as Mrs. Ridge. And as over the next few days, she kept phoning me with bad reports about the little dog, my confidence began to ebb. It was a week after the action that she begged me to come to the house again. Joshua was unchanged. Apathetic, tail tucked down, sad eyes, and still soundless. Her mistress was obviously under strain. Mr. Harriet, she said. Mr. Harriet, what are we going to do? I can't sleep for thinking about him. I produced a cetoscope and thermometer and examined the little animal again. Then I pulped him thoroughly from head to tail. When I had finished, I squatted in the rug and looked up at Mrs. Rich. I can't find anything new. You'll just have to be patient. But that, but that's what you said before, and I feel I can't go on much longer like this. Still no barking. She shook her head. No, and that's what I'm waiting for. He eats a little, walks around a little, but we never hear a sound from him. I know I'll stop worrying if I hear him bark just once, but otherwise I have a horrible feeling he's going to die. I had hoped that my next visit would be more cheerful, but though I was greatly relieved at Mrs. Rich, I spirits, I was surprised too. I sat down in one of the comfortable chairs in the lounge Well, I hope you'll soon recover your car, I said. She waved a hand negligently. Oh, it'll turn up somewhere, I'm sure. But still, you must be very upset. Upset? Not a bit. I'm so happy. Happy about losing the car? No, no, not about that. About Joshua. Joshua? Yes, she sat down on the chair opposite and leaned forward. Do you know what he did when those people were driving the car away? No, tell me. He barked. Mr. Harriet, Joshua barked. <laughs> I suppose I wrote this story, says the author, simply because it is on the only time I have known a person to be delighted of having a car stolen. And yet I shouldn't have been too surprised. Again and again, I have noticed that the recovery of a pet can lift people away from their troubles. Everybody knows the first spark is often a sign that the worst is over and that their dog will soon be restored to health. And what does a lost car compare with that? Amen. And our next story is number 38 by Theo the Pub Terrier. The Bar Terrier. I was in the drove arms and George Wilkes, the auctioneer, was speaking. I reckon that's the best pulp terrier I have ever seen. He bent down from the bar counter and patted Theo's shaggy head as it protruded from beneath his master's stool. It struck me that the pulp terrier wasn't a bad description. 
Theo was small and mainly white, though there were odd streaks of black in his flanks, and his muscle had a bushy outgrow of hair which made him undeniably attractive but still more mysterious. I warmed to a Scottish colleague recently who, when pressed by a lady client to diagnose her dog breed and lineage, replied finally, Madam, I think it would be bad just to call him a wee brun dug. <laughs> wee brun dug. By the same token, Theo could safely be described as a wee white dug. But in Yorkshire, that expression pup terrier would be more easily understood. His master, Paul Cotterell, looked down from his high perch stool. What's he saying about you, old chap? He murmured laggingly. And at the sound of his voice, the little animal leaped, eager and wagging from his retreat. Theo spent a considerable part of his life between the four metal legs of that stool, as did the master on the seat, and it often seemed to be a waste of time for both of them. I often took my own dog, Sam, into pubs, and he would squat beneath my seat. But, whereas it was an occasional thing with me, maybe once or twice a week with Paul Cotterell, it was an unvarying ritual. Every night from 8 o'clock onwards, he could be found sitting there at the end of the bar at the Drover's Arm Inn, pint and glass in front of him, little curly pipe drooping over his chin. For a young man like him, he was a bachelor in his late 30s and a person of education and intelligence. It seemed a thorough existence. He turned to me as I approached the counter. Hello, Jim. Let me get you a drink. That's very kind of you, Paul, I replied. I have a pint. Splendid. He turned to the barmaid with easy courtesy. Could I trouble you, Moi Moira? We sipped our beer and we chatted. This time it was about the musical festival at Branton, and then we got to the music in general. As with any other topic I had discussed with him, he seemed to know a lot about it. So you're not all that keen on Bach, he inquired lazily. No, not really. Some of it, yes, but on the whole, I like something a bit more emotional. Elgar, Beethoven, Mozart, even Tchaikovsky. I suppose your eyebrows look down your noses at him. He shrugged, puffed his little pipe, and regarded me with a half-smile. One eyebrow raised, he often looked like that, and it made me feel... He ought to wear a monocle. But he didn't enthuse about Bach. Though it seemed he was his favorite composer, he never enthused about anything. And he listened with that funny look on his face while I rhapsodized about the Elgar Violin Concerto. Paul Cotero was from the south of England but the locals had long since forgiven him for that because he was likable, amusing, and always ready to buy anybody a drink from the, his corner in the droves. To me, he had a charm which was very English, casual, effortly. He never got excited. He was always polite and utterly self-contained. While you're here, while you're here, Jim, he said, I wonder if you had a look at Theo's foot. Of course, it's one of our best occupation houses. 
that wherever he goes socially, it is taken for granted that there is nothing he would rather do than dole out advice or listen to symptoms. Let's have him up. Here, boy, come on. Paul patted his knee, and the little dog jumped up and sat there, eyes sparkling with pleasure. And I thought, as I always did, that Theo should be in pictures. He was the perfect film dog with that extraordinary fussy laugh face. People paid good money to see dogs just like him in cinemas all over the world. All right, Theo, I said, scooping him from his master's knee. Where is the trouble? Paul indicated the right forefoot with the stem of his pipe. It's that one. He's been going a bit lame off and on for the last few days. I see. I rolled a little animal on his back and then laughed. Oh, he's only got a broken claw. There's a little bit hanging out there. He must have caught it on a stone. Hang on a minute. I delved in my pocket for the scissors, which always dwelt there. I quick snip on the job was done. Is that all? asked Paul. Yes, that's it. One eyebrow went up mockingly as he looked at Theo. So that's what you were making all that fuss about, eh? Silly old trout. He snapped his finger. Back you go. The little dog obediently leaped to the carpet and disappeared under his sanctuary beneath the stool. And at that moment, I had a flash of intuition about Paul, about his charm, which I had often admired and envied. He didn't really care. He was fond of his dog, of course. He took him everywhere with him, exercised him regularly by the river, but there was none of the anxiety the almost desperate concern which I had so often seen in the eyes of my clients when I dealt with even the most trivial of their ailments. They cared too much as I have always done with my own animals. And of course he was right. It was an easier and more comfortable way to live. Caring made you vulnerable while Paul cruised along impregnable. That attractive casualness and the nonchalant good manners the imperturbability, they all had their roots in the fact that nothing touched him very deeply. And despite my snap diagnosis of his character, I still envied him. I have always been blown around too easily by my emotions. It must be lovely to be like Paul. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how everything fitted in. He had never cared enough to get married. Even Bach, with his mathematical music, was a part of the, of the pattern. I think that major operations deserve another pint, Jim, he smiled, his lopsided smile, <clears throat> unless you demand a higher fee. I laughed. I would always like him. We are all different, and we have to act as we are made. But as I started my second glass, I thought again of his carefree life. He had a good job in the government office in Broughton, no domestic responsibilities, and every night he sat on the same stool drinking beer with his dog underneath. He hadn't a worry in the world. Anyway, he was part of the Darby scene, part of something I like, and since I have always hated change, it was in a sense reassuring to know that no matter what night you went into the Drover's pub, you will find Paul in the corner and Theo's shaggy muscle peeping from below. 
I felt like that one night when I dropped in near closing time. Do you think he's got worms? The question was typically offhand. I don't know, Paul. Why do you ask? He drew on his pipe. Oh, I just thought he looked a bit thin lately. Huh, come up, Theo. The little dog perched on his master's knee, looked as chirpy as ever, and when I reached over and lifted, he licked my hand, but his rib did feel rather prominent. Hmm, yes, I said. Maybe he has lost a bit of weight. Have you noticed him passing any worms? I haven't, actually. Not even little bits, witsy segments sticking around his ear, rear? No, Jim, he shook his head and smiled, but I haven't looked at all that closely. Oh, boy. Okay, I said, let's worm him just in case. I'll bring some tablets tomorrow night. You'll be better. The eyebrows went up. I think that's highly probable. Theo duly got his worm tablets, and after that, there was a space of several weeks when I was too busy to visit the drovers. When I finally did get in, it was a Saturday night, and the athletic club then was in full spat swing. A rhythmic beat drifted from the barroom. The little bar was packed, and the domino players were under pressure, squashed into a corner by the crush of dinner jackets and backless dresses. In the noise and, and heat, I struggled towards the bar, thinking that the place was unrecognizable. But there was one feature unchanged, Paul Cotorel on his stool at the far end of the corner. I squeezed in next to him and saw he was wearing his usual tweed jacket. Not dancing, Paul? He half closed his eyes, shook his head slowly, and smiled at me over his bent little pipe. Not for me, old boy, he murmured. Too much like work. I glanced down and saw that something else hadn't changed. Theo was there, too, keeping his nose well clear of the milling feet. I ordered two beers and we tried to converse, but it was difficult to shout above the babble. Arms kept poking between us towards the counter. Red faces pushed into ours and shouted greetings. Most of the time, we just looked around us. Then Paul leaned closely and spoke into my ear. I gave Theo those pills, but he's still getting thinner. Really? I shouted back. That's unusual. Yes, perhaps you'll have a look at him. I nodded. He snapped his fingers and the little dog was on his knee in an instant. I reached and lifted him onto mine and I noticed immediately that he was lighter in my hands. You're right, I said, he's still losing weight. Balancing the dog in my lap, I pulled down an eyelid and saw that the conjunctiva was pale. I shouted again, he's anemic. I felt my way back over his face and behind the angle of the jaw, I found that the post pharyngeal limbs glands were greatly enlarged. This was strange. Could he have some form of mouth or throat infection? I looked helplessly around me, wishing fervently that Paul wouldn't invariably consult me about his dog in a pub. I wanted to examine the animal, but I couldn't very well dis- deposit him among the glasses on the bar. I was trying to get a better grip with a view to looking down his throat when my hand slipped behind his foreleg and my heart gave a sudden thump. As I encountered the axillary gland, 
it was too was grossly enlarged. I whipped my fingers back into his groin, and there was the inguinal in, in gland, prominent as an egg. The prescapular was the same, and as I groped fervently, I realized that every superficial lymph gland was several times its normal size. Hodgkin's disease. Hodgkin's disease. For a few moments, I was oblivious of the shouting and laughter, the muffled blare of music. Then I looked at Paul, who was regarding me calmly as he puffed his pipe. How could I tell him in these surroundings? He would ask me what Hodgkin's disease was, and I would have to explain that it was a cancer of that lymphatic system and that his dog was surely going to die. As my thoughts raced, I struck the shaggy head and the and Theo's comic whiskered face turned towards me. People justly passed, hands reached out and bore gins and whiskeys and beers past my face. A fat man threw his arm around my neck. I leaned across. Paul, I said, yes, Jim. Will you will you bring Theo around to the surgery tomorrow morning? It's 10 o'clock on, Sunday, on a Sunday. Momentarily, the eyebrows twitched upwards, and he nodded. Right, old boy. I didn't bother to finish my drink. I began to push my way towards the door, and as the crush closed around me, I glanced back. The little dog's tail was just disappearing under the stool. Next day, I had one of those early waking mornings when I started tossing around at 6 o'clock and finished by staring at the ceiling. Even after I had got my feet on the ground and brought Helen a cup of tea, the waiting was interminable until that moment arrived which I had been dreading when I faced Paul across the surgery table with Theo standing between us. I told him straightway I couldn't think of an easy way to lead it up to it. His expression did not change but he took his pipe out of his mouth and looked steadily at me, then at the dog and back of me and at me. Oh, he said at last, I see. I didn't say anything, and he slowly ran his hand along the little animal's back. Are you quite sure, Jim? Absolutely, I'm sorry. Is there no treatment? There are various palliatives Paul, but I never seen any of them do any good. The end result is always the same. Yes, he nodded slowly, but he doesn't look so bad. What will happen if we don't do anything? I paused. Well, as the internal glands enlarge, various things will happen. Ascites, dropsy will develop in the abdomen. In fact, you see he's a little bit pot-bellied now. Yes, I do see. Now you mention it. Anything else? As the thoracic glands get bigger, he'll begin to pant. I noticed that already. He's his breathless after a short walk. And all the time, he'll get thinner and thinner and more debilitated. Paul looked down at his feet for a few moments, then faced me. So what it's amount to it that he's going to be pretty miserable for the rest of his life? He swallowed. And how long is that going to be? A few weeks, it varies, maybe up to three months. Well, Jim, he smoothed back his hair. I can't let that happen. It's my responsibility. 
you must put him to sleep now before he really starts to suffer. Don't you agree? Yes, Paul, it's the kindest thing to do. Will you do it immediately as soon as I am out of that door? I will, I replied, and I promise you he won't know a thing. His face held a curious fixity of expression. He put his pipe in his mouth, but it had gone out, so he stuffed it into his pocket. Then he leaned forward and patted his dog once on the head. The bushy face with the funny shook of hair round the muscle turned to him, and for a few seconds they looked at each other. <clears throat> then goodbye, old chap, he muttered and strode quickly from the room. I kept my promise. Good lad, good old Theo, I murmured. I struck the face and ears again and again as the little creature slipped peacefully away. Like all vets, I hate doing this, painless though it was, but to me there was always been a comfort in the knowledge that the last thing these helpless animals knew was the sound of a friendly voice and the touch of a gentle hand. Sentimental, maybe. Not like Paul. He had been practical and utterly rational in the way he had acted. He had been able to do the right thing because he was not at the mercy of his emotions. Later, over a Sunday lunch, which I didn't enjoy as much as usual, I too told Helen about Theo. I had to say something because she had produced a delicious pot roast on the gas ring, which was our only means of cooking, and I wasn't doing justice to her skill. Sitting at our bench, I looked down at her. It was my turn for the high stool. You know, Helen, I said, that was an object lesson for me. The way Paul acted, I mean, if I've been in his position, I have shilly shall I try to put off something which was inedible. She thought for a moment, well, a lot of people would. Yes, but he didn't. I put down my knife and fork and started at the, stared at the wall. He behaved in a mature way. I suppose Paul has one of those personalities you read about. Well-adjusted, completely adequate. Come on, Jim, eat your lunch. I know it was a sad thing, but it had to be done, and you mustn't start criticizing yourself. Paul is Paul, and you are you. I started again on the meat, but I couldn't repress the rising sense of my own inadequacy. Then, as I glanced to one side, I saw that my wife was smiling up at me. I felt suddenly reassured. It seemed that she at least didn't seem to mind that I was me. That was on a Sunday, and on Tuesday morning, I was handling out some wart lotion to Mr. Sangster to keep a few dairy cows down by the station. Deb, that on the utter night and morning after milking, I said, I think you're fine that the warts will start to drop off after a week or two. Thank ya. He, he handed over a half a crown, and I was drooping into the desk drawer when he spoke again. Bad job about Paul Quartel, wasn't it? What do you mean? Ah, th- though, thought you had heard, he said. He's dead. Dead? I stared at him stupidly. How? What? 
Found him this morning. He did away with self. I leaned with both hands on the desk. Do you mean suicide? Eh? That's what they say. Took a lot of pills. It's all over town. I found myself hunching over that day. I found myself hunching over that day book, slightly scanning the list of calls while the farmer's voice seemed to come from far away. Yeah, it's a bad job right now. He were a nicer feller, reckon everybody liked him. Later that day, I was passing Paul's lodging when I saw his landlady, Mrs. Clayton, in the doorway. I pulled up and got out of the car. Mrs. Clayton, I said, I still can't believe this. Nor can I, Mr. Harriet. It's terrible. Her face was pale, her eyes red. He was with me six years, you know. He was like a son. But why on earth? Oh, it was losing his dog that did it. He just couldn't stand it. A great wave of mystery rose and engulfed me, and she put her hand on my arm. Don't look like that, Mr. Harriet. It wasn't your fault. Paul told me about it, and nobody could have saved Theo. People die of that, never mind dogs. I nodded dumbly, and she went on. But I'll tell you something in confidence, Mr. Harriet. Paul wasn't able to stand things like you or me. It was the way he was made. You see, he suffered from depression. Depression, Paul? Oh, yes, he's been under the doctor for a long time and taking pills regularly. He loose put a brave face on, but he had nervous trouble off and on for years. Nervous trouble? I never had dreamed. No, nobody would. But that's how it was. He had an unhappy childhood from what I made out. Maybe that's why he was so fond of his dog. He got too attached to him. Really? Yes, yes. She took out a screwed up handkerchief and it blew, and blew her nose. Well, as I said, the poor lad had a rough time most of his life, but he was brave. There didn't seem anything else to say. I drove away out of the town and the calm green hills offered a quiet contrast to the turmoil which can fill a man's mind. So much for Harriet as a judge of character, I couldn't have been more wrong. Paul had fought his secret battle with a courage which had deceived everybody. I reflected on the object lesson which I thought he had given me, but in fact it was a lesson of another kind and one which I have never forgotten that there are countless people like Paul who are not what they seem. Not very pleasant to look back at this and it saddened me to write about it, but it happened. It was a unique and unhappy episode in my life and highlighted in a particular tragic way the vital part a pet can play in the life of a troubled person. I can still see Paul in the corner of the drover's arms with his little dog peeping out from under his stool. This picture of ease and contentment was such an unexpected prelude to tragedy. Uh, 
Our next story is uh, number 39. It's called Digger. Um, and he goes on talking about the guy on this on this chapter. The shock of Paul Quotarell's death stayed with me for a long time. And in fact, I knew I have never quit, quite got over it because even now, when the company and the bar of the drovers has changed and I am one of the few old faces left from 35 years ago, I can still see the johnning figure on the corner stool and the bushy face peeping from beneath. It was that kind of experience I didn't want to repeat in my lifetime. Yes, uncannily, I ran into the same sort of thing almost immediately afterwards. It couldn't have been more than a week after Paul's funeral that Andrew Vine brought his fox terrier to the surgery. I put the little dog on the table and examined each of his eyes carefully in turn. I'm afraid he's getting worse, I said. Without warning, the man slumped across the table and buried his face in his hands. I put my hands on his shoulder. What is it, Andrew? What on earth's the matter? At first, he did not answer, but stayed there, huddled grotesquely by the side of his dog as great sobs shook his body. When he spoke at last, it was into his hands, and his voice was hoarse and desperate. I, I, can't, I can't stand it. If Digger goes blind, I'll kill myself. I looked down at the bowed head in horrified disbelief. It couldn't be happening again, not so soon after Paul. And yet there were similarities. Andrew was another bachelor in his 30s. And the terrier was his constant companion. He lived in lodgings and appeared to have no worries, though he was a shy, defiant man with a fragile look about his tall, stooping frame and pallid face. He had first consulted me about Digger several months ago. I call him that because he's dug large holes in the garden ever since his puppy days. He said with a half-smile, looking at me almost apprehensively from large, dark eyes. I laughed. I hope you haven't brought him to me to cure that because I never read anything in the books about it. No, no, it's about something else, his eyes, and he's had that trouble since he was a pup too. Really? Tell me. Well, when I first got Digger, he had sort of a mattery eyes. But the breeder said he probably just got some irritant in them and it would soon clear up. But in fact, it did. But he's never been quite right. He's always seemed to have a little discomfort in his eyes. How do you mean? He rubs the side of his face along the carpet and he blinks in bright light. I see I put the little animal's face around towards me and look intently at the eyelids. My mind had been busy as he spoke and I was fairly sure, sure I should find either entropion, inversion of the eyelids, or dystichiasis, an extra row of lashes rubbing against the eyeball. But there was no sign of either. The surface of the cornea, too, looked normal, except perhaps that the deeper structures of lens and the iris was not an easy to define as usual. I moved over to a cupboard for the up to Moscope. How old is he now? About a year. 
So he had this for about 10 months. Yes, about that. But it varies a lot. Most of the time he seems normal. Then there are days when he goes and lies in his basket with his eyes half closed and you can tell there's something wrong. Not pain really, more like discomfort, as I said. I nodded and hope I was looking wise, but none of this added up to anything familiar. I switched on the little light on the optomoscope and peered into the depth of the most magical and delicate of all organs, down through the lens to the brilliant tapestry of the retina with its optic papilla and branching blood vessels. I couldn't find a thing wrong. Does he still dig holes, I asked. When baffled, I often snatch at the straws and I wonder if the dog was suffering from a soil irritation. Andrew shook his head. No, very seldom now. And anyway, his bad days are never associated with his digging. Is that so? I rubbed my chin. The man was obviously ahead of me with his thinking and I had an uncomfortable feeling of bewilderment. People were always bringing their dogs in with bad eyes and there was invariably something to be seen, some cause to be found, and would you say that it was one of his bad days? Well, I thought so this morning, but he seemed a bit better now. Still, he's a bit blinky, don't you think? Yes, maybe so. Digger did appear to be reluctantly to open his eyes full to the sunshine streaming through the surgery window. And occasionally he kept them closed for a second or two as though he wasn't very happy. But damn it, nothing gave me the slightest clue. I didn't tell the owner that. I hadn't the faintest idea what was wrong with his dog. Such remarks do not inspire confidence. Instead, I took refuge in business-like activity. I'm going to give you some lotion, I said briskly. Put a few drops in his eyes three times daily. And let me know how he goes on. It's possible he's has some long-lasting infections in there. I handed over a bottle of 2% boric acid solution and patted Digger's head. I hope that will clear up things for you, lad, I said. And the stumpy tail wagged in reply. He was a sharp-looking little animal, attractive and good nature, and a fine specimen of the smooth-haired breed with his long head and neck pointed nose, and beautifully straight limbs. He jumped from the table and leaped excitedly around his master's legs. I laughed. He's eager to go like most of my patients. I bent and slapped him playfully on the hump. My word, doesn't he look fit? He's his fit, Andrew smiled proudly. In fact, I often think that that's apart from those eyes. He's perfect little physical machine you will see him out in the fields. He can he can run like a whippet. I'll bet he can. Keep in touch, will you? I waved them out of the door and turned to my other work. Mercifully unaware that I had just embarked on one of the most frustrating and traumatic cases of my career. After that first time, I took special notice of Digger and his owner, Andrew, a sensitive, likable man, with a representative for a firm agricultural chemist and, like myself, spent most of his time driving around Darby District. His dog was always with him, and I had been perfunctorily amused by the fact that the 
little animals and verily peering intently through the windscreen, his paws either on the dash or balanced on his master's hand as he operated the gear lever. But now that I was personally interested, I couldn't discern the obvious delight which the little animal derived from taking in every detail of his surroundings. He missed nothing in his daily journeys, the road ahead, the houses, the people, trees, fields, which flashed by the windows. They made up his world. I met him one day when I was exercising Sam up on the high moors, which crowned the windy summits of the fells. But this was May, the air was soft, and a week's hot sunshine had dried the green path which wandered among the heather. I saw Digger flashing like a white streak over the velvet turf, and when he spotted Sam, he darted up to him, set himself teasingly for a moment, then shot back to Andrew, who was standing in a natural circular glade among the hash-brown growth. Here goes Bushel blazed in full yellow glory, and the little dog hurtled around and around the arena, exulting in his health and speed. That's what I call sheer joy of living, I said. Andrew smiled shyly. Yes, isn't he beautiful, he murmured. How are the eyes, I asked. He shrugged. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Much the time as before, but I must say he seems easier whenever I put the drops in. But he still has days when he looks unhappy. Yes, I have to say some days they bother him a lot. Again, the frustration welled in me. Let's walk back to the car, I said. I might as well have a look at him. I lifted Digger onto the bonnet and examined him again. There wasn't a single abnormality in the eyelids. I had wondered if I had missed something last time, but as the bright sunshine slanted across the eyeballs, I could just discern the faintest cloudiness in the cornea. There was a slight Keratitis there which hadn't been visible before but why why he better have some stronger lotion I rummage in the car boot I got some here we'll try silver nitrate this time Andrew brought him in about a week the corneal discolored agent had gone probably the silver nitrate had moved it but the underlying trouble was unchanged there was still something sadly wrong Something I couldn't diagnose. That was when I started to get really worried. As the weeks passed, I bombarded those eyes with everything in the book. Oxide of mercury, chinoso, zinc, sulfide, itch, and and a host of other things which are now buried in history. I had none of those modern sophisticated antibiotics and steroid applications, but it would have made no difference if I had. I know that now. The real nightmare started when I saw the first of the pigment cells begin to invade the cornea. Sinister brown specks gathering at the limbos and pushing out dark tendrils into the smooth membrane which was Digger's window on the world. I had seen cells like that then before. When they came, they usually stayed and they were opaque, opaque. Over the next month, I found them with my pathetic remedies. I fought them. They crept inward slowly, but inexorably, 
blurring and narrowing Digger's field of vision. Andrew noticed them too, and when he brought his little dog into the surgery, he claps and unclaps his hands anxiously. You know, he's seeing less and less all the time, Mr. Harriet. I can tell he still looks out the car window, but he used to bark at all sorts of things he didn't like, other dogs, for instance, and now he just doesn't spot them. He's, he's losing his sight. I felt like screaming or kicking the table, but since that wouldn't have helped, I just looked at him. It's that brown stuff, isn't it? He said, what is it? It's called pigmentary. Kiratitis. Andrew, it sometimes happens when the cornea in front of it's the front of the eyeball has been inflamed over a long period and it is very difficult to treat. I'll do the best I can. My best wasn't enough. That slow creeping tide was pitless, and as the pigment cells were laid down thicker and thicker, the resulting layer was almost black, lowering a dingy curtain between Digger and all the things he had gazed at so eagerly. And all the time I suffered a long nine worry, a helpless wretchedness as I contemplated the inedible. It was when I examined the eyes five months after I had first seen them that Andrew broke down. There was hardly anything to be seen of the original cornea structure now, just a brown-black opacity which had left only minute chinks for moment of sight. Blindness was now far away. I patted the man's shoulder again. Come on, Andrew, come over here and sit down. I pulled over the single wooden chair in the consulting room. He staggered across the floor and almost collapsed on the seat. He sat there, head in hands for some time, then raised a tear-strained face to me. His expression was distraught. I... I can't bear the thought of it, he gasped. A friendly little thing like Digger. He loves everybody. What has ever he done to deserve this? Nothing, Andrew. It's just one of those sad things would happen. I'm terribly sorry. He rolled his head from side to side. Oh, oh God, but it's worse for him. You see him in the car. He's so interested in everything. Life wouldn't be worth living for him. If he lost his sight, and I don't want to live anymore either. You mustn't talk like that, Andrew, I said. That's going too far. I hesitated. Please, don't be offended, but you ought to see your doctor. Oh, I'm always at the doctor, he replied. I'm full of pills right now. He tells me I have a depression. The word was like a mournful knell. Coming so soon after Paul, it sent a wave of panic through me. How long have you been like this? Oh, weeks. I seem to be getting worse. Have you ever had it before? No, never. He shrung his hands and looked at the floor. The doctor says that if I keep on taking pills, I'll get over it. But I'm reaching to the end of my tether now. But the doctor's right, Andrew. You got to stick it and you'll be as good as new. I don't believe it, he muttered. Every day lasts a year. Every day lasts a year. I never enjoy anything, and every morning when I wake up, I dread having to face the world again. I didn't know what to say or how to help. Can I get you a glass of water? No, no thanks. He turned his deathly pale face to me again 
and the dark eyes held a terrible blankness. What's the use of going on, going on? I know I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. I am no psychiatrist, but I knew better than to tell somebody in Andrew's condition to snap out of it. And I had a flash of intuition. All right, I said, be miserable for the rest of your life. But while you're about it, you got to look after this dog. Look after him? What can I do? He's going blind. There's nothing anybody can do for him now. You're wrong, Andrew. This is where you start doing things for him. He's going to be lost without your help. How do you mean? Well, you know all those walks you take him, you got to get him used to the same track and path so that he can strut along the familiar ground without fear, keeping him clear of holes and ditches. He he screwed up his face. Yes, but he won't enjoy the walks anymore. He will, I said. You'll be surprised. Oh, but... And that nice big lawn and the back of the house of your where he runs. You have to be on the lookout all the time in case there are things left around on the grass that he might bump into. And the eye drops. You say they make him more comfortable. Well, who's going to put them in if you don't? Well, well Mr. Harriet, you see how he always looks out the car when he's with me? He still looks out. Even if he can't see, yes, I put my hand on on his arm. You must understand, Andrew, when animals lose his sight, he doesn't realize what's happening to him. It's a terrible thing, I know, but he doesn't suffer the mental agony of a human being. He stood up and took a long, struttering breath. But I'm having the agony. I've been dreading this happening for so long. I haven't been able to sleep for thinking about it. It seems so cruel and unjust for this to strike a helpless animal, a little creature who's never done anybody any harm. He's began to wring his hand again and again and pace around the room. You're just torturing yourself, I say sharply. That's part of your trouble. You're using Digger to punish yourself instead of doing something useful. Oh, but what can I do that will really help? All those things you talked about, They can't give him a happy life. Oh, but they can. Digger can be happy for years and years. If you really work at it, it's up to you. Like a man in a dream, he bent and gathered his dog into his arms and shuffled along the passage to the front door. As he went down the steps into the street, I called out to him. Keep in touch with your doctor, Andrew. Take your pills regularly. And remember, I raised my voice onto a shock. Remember, you got a job to do with that dog. After Pa and I was on a knife edge of apprehension, but this time there was no tragic news to shatter. Instead, I saw Andrew vying frequently, sometimes in the town with Digger on the lead, occasionally in his car with a little white-headed frame, always in the windscreen, and most often in the fields by the river where he seemed to be carrying out my advice by following good open tracks again and again. It, it was by the river that I stopped him one day. How are things going, Andrew? He looked at me unsmiling. Oh, he's finding his way around, not too badly. I keep my eye on him. I always avoid that field over there. There's a lot of boogie places in it. Good, that's the idea. And how are you yourself? 
Do you really want to know? Yes, of course. He tried to smile. Well, this is one of my good days. I'm just tense and dreadfully unhappy. On my bad days, I'm terror-stricken, despairing, utterly desolate. I'm sorry, Andrew, he shrugged. Don't think I'm wallowing in self-pity. You ask me anyway, I have a system. Every morning, I look at myself in the mirror and I say, Okay, Vinny, here's another bloody awful day coming up. But you're going to do your job and you're going to look after your dog. That's good, Andrew. And it will all pass. The whole thing will go away and you'll be all right one day. That's what the doctor says. He gave me a sidelong glance, but in the meantime, he looked down at his dog. Come on, Digger. He turned and strode away abruptly with the little dog trotting after him. And there was something in the set of the man's shoulders and the forward thrust of his head which gave me hope. He was a picture of a of fierce determination. My hopes were fulfilled. Both Andrew and Digger won through. I knelt that within months. I knew that within months. But the final picture of my mind is of a meeting I had with the two of them about a two years later. It was on a flat table land above Darby where I had first seen Digger hurtling joyously among the gorse bushes. He wasn't doing so badly now, running freely over the smooth green turf, sniffing among the herbage, cocking a leg now and then with deep contentment against the dry stone wall which ran along the hillside. Andrew laughed when he saw me. He had put on weight and looked a different person. Digger knows every inch of this wall, he said. I think it's just about his favorite spot. You can see how he's enjoying himself. I nodded. He certainly looks like a happy little dog. Yes, he's happy, all right. He has had a good life, and honestly, I forget that he can't see. He paused. You were right that day in your surgery. You said this would happen. Well, that's great, Andrew, I said. And you're happy too, aren't you? I am, Mr. Harriet. Thank God I am. A shadow crossed his face. When I think how it was then, I can't believe my luck. It was like being in a dark valley, and bit by bit, I climbed out into the sunshine. I can see that. You're as good as new now. He smiled. I'm better than that, better than I was before. That terrible experience did me good. Remember you said I was torturing myself? I realized I had spent all my days doing that. I used to take every little mishap of life and beat myself over the head with it. You don't have to tell me, Andrew, I said ruefully. I've always been pretty good at that myself. Well, yes, I suppose a lot of us are. But I examined an expert I became an expert and see where it got me. It helped me so much to have Digger to look after. His face lit up and he pointed over the grass. Just look at that. The little dog had been inspecting an ancient fence, a few rotting planks, which were probably part of an old sheepfold. And as we watched, he leaped effortlessly between the spars to the other side. Marvelous, I said delightfully. You'd think there was nothing wrong with him. Andrew turned to me. Mr. Harriet, when I see a thing like that, it makes me wonder, can a blind dog do such a thing? Do you think, do you think there's a chance he can see just a little? I hesitated. 
Maybe he could sit a bit through that pigment, but it can't be much. A flicker of light and shape, perhaps, but I really don't know. But in case he's become so clever in his familiar surroundings that it doesn't make much difference. Yes, yes, he smiled philosophically. Anyway, we must get on our way. Come on, Digger. He snapped his finger and set off along a track which pushed a vivid green finger through the heather, pointing clean and unbroken to the sunny skyline. His dog bounded ahead of him, not just a trot, but a gallop. I have made no secret of the fact that I never really knew the cause of Digger's blindness, but in the light of modern developments in eye surgery, I believe it's a condition called Kiratis Psyche. This was simply not recognized in those early days, and anyway, if I had known, I could have done little about it. The name means dryness of the cornea, and it occurs when the dog is not producing enough tears. At the present time, it is treated by instilling artificial tears or an intricate operation where the salivary ducts are transferred to the eyes. But even now, despite these things, I have seen that dreaded pigmentation taking over in the end. When I look back in the whole episode, my feeling is of thankfulness. All sorts of things help people to pull out of depression. Mostly, it is their family. The knowledge that wife and children are dependent on them. Sometimes, it is cost to work for, but in Andrew Vine's case, it was a dog. I often think of the dark valley which closed around him as that time, and I am convinced he came out of it in the end of Digger's lead. I am convinced he came out of it on the end of Digger's lead. This is a glorious contrast with the other story and a good example of the therapeutic benefit of owning a pet. I know beyond doubt that just being with a dog and talking to it has a cheering and soothing effect. My morning chat with my own dog sets me up for the day. And when Andrew had the responsibility for looking after Digger, it was a lifesaver. This story also gave me the opportunity of recording a case of a dog going blind. It is a heartbreaking thing to observe and in a way worse for the owner. I hope that I've been able to point out that animals can adjust in a miraculous way to this affliction because it is great comfort to people. Because it it is a great comfort to people to realize that their pet can still be very happy in its way. Amen. Thank you for listening to Harriet's Stories. The Great Escape, another story by James Harriet Doc Stories. I poised my knife over a swollen ear. Tristan, one elbow leaning wearily on the table, was holding an anesthetic mask over the nose of the sleeping dog when Siegfried came into the room. He glanced briefly at the patient. Ah, yes, that hematoma. You were telling me about James. Then he looked across the table at his brother. Good God, you're a lovely sight this morning. When did you get in last night? 
Tristan raised a pallid countenance. His eyes were bloodshot slits between puffy lids. Oh, I don't quite know. Fairly late, I should think. Fairly late? I got back from a following at four o'clock, and you hadn't arrived then. Where the hell were you anyway? I was at the licensed Victorious Ball. Very good, though. Actually, I bet it was. Sea Freak snorted. <laughs> you don't miss a thing, do you? Darts team diner, bell ringers, outing, pigeon club dance, and now is the licensed Victuallers Ball? If there's a good booze up going on anywhere, you'll find it. When under fire, Tristan always retained his dignity, and he drew it around him now like a treadbare cloak. As a matter of fact, he said, many of the licensed victuallers are my friends. His brother flushed. I believe you. I should think you're the best bloody customer they had ever had. Tristan made no reply, but began to make a careful check at the flow of oxygen into the ether bottle. And another thing, Seifert continued. I keep seeing you slinking around with about a dozen different women, and you're supposed to be studying for an exam. That's an exaggeration, the young man gave him a pained pain look. I admit I enjoy a little female company now and then, just like yourself. Tristan believed in attack as the best form of defense, and it was a telling blow because there was a constant stream of attractive girls laying siege to Siegfried at Skegdale House. But the elder brother was temporarily halted. Never mind me, he shouted. I passed all my exams. I'm talking about you. Didn't I see you with that new barmaid from the drawers the other night? You dodged rapidly into a shop doorway, but I'm bloody sure it was you. Tristan cleared his throat. It's quite possible it was. I have recently become friends with Lydia. She's a very nice girl. I'm not saying she isn't. What I'm saying is that I want to see you indoors at night with your books instead of boozing and chasing women. Is that clear? Quite. The young man inclined his head gracefully and turned down the knob of the anesthetic machine. His brother regarded him balefully for a few moments, breathing deeply. These remonstrations always looked it out of him, always took it out of him. Then he turned away quickly and left. Tristan Fouquet crumbled as soon as the door closed. Watch the anesthetic for a minute, Jim, he croaked. He went over to the basin in the corner, filled the measuring jar with cold water, and drank it, it at a long gulp. Then he soaked some cotton wool under the tap and applied it to his brow. I wish he hadn't come in just then. I'm in no mood for the race, voices, and angry words. He reached up to a large bottle of aspirin, swallowed a few, and washed them down with another gargantuan draught. All right then, Jim, he murmured as he returned to the table and took over the mask again. Let's go. I bent once more over the sleeping dog. He was a Scotty called Hamish, and his mistress, Miss Westernman, had brought him in two days ago. She was a retired school teacher, and I always used to think she must have had little trouble in keeping her class in order. The chilly, pale eyes looking straight into mine reminded me that she was a tall as I was and square jaw between the muscular shoulders, completed a read. Buttable presence. Mr. Harriet, she barked. 
I want you to have a look at Hamish. I do hope it's nothing serious, but his ear has become very swollen and painful. They don't get our cancer there, do they? For a moment, <clears throat> the steady gaze wavered. <clears throat> oh, that's most unlikely. I lifted the little animal's chin and looked at the left ear, which was drooping over the side of his face. His whole head, in fact, was askew, as though dragged down by pain. Carefully, I lift the ear and touch the tent swelling with a forefinger. Hamish looked around at me with a whimper. And I said, I guess I know, old chap. It's tender, isn't it? As I turned to Miss Westerman, I almost bumped into the close-cropped iron-gray head, which was hoovering close over the little dog. He's got an areohematoma, I said. What on earth is that? It's when the little blood vessels between the skin and cartilage of the ear rupture and the blood flows out and causes this acute dis distension. She patted the jet black shaggy coat. But what's the cause? It. Canker, usually? He has been shaking his head lately. Yes, now you mention it. He has, just as though he had gotten something in his ear and was trying to get rid of it. Well, that's what's burst the blood vessels. I can see he has a touch of canker. Though it isn't common in this breed. She noted, I see. And how can you cure it? Only by an operation, I'm afraid. Oh, dear. She put her hand on her mouth. I'm not keen on that. There's nothing to worry about, I said. It's just a case of letting the blood out and stitching the layers of the ear together. If we don't do this soon, he'll suffer a lot of pain and finish up with a cauliflower ear. And we don't want that because he's a bony little chap. I mean it, too. Hamish was a proud, strutting, trim little dog. The Scottish Terrier is an attractive creature, and I often lament that there are so few around in these modern days. After some hesitation, Miss Western Man agreed, and we fixed a date two days from then. When she brought him in for the operation, she deposited a hamish in my arms, stroked his head again and again, then looked and looked from Tristan to me and back again. You'll take care of him, won't you? she said, and the jaw jutted and the pale blue eyes stabbed for a moment i felt like a little boy caught in mischief and i think my colleague felt the same because he blew out his breath as the lady departed by gum jim that's a tough baby he muttered i wouldn't like to get on the wrong side of her i nodded yes and she thinks all oh, the world is dog so let's make a good job of him <clears throat> after seifers departed i lifted the ear which was now a turgid cone and made an incision along the inner skin as this pent up blood gushed out i caught it in a enamel dish then i squeezed several bit clogs through the wound no wonder the poor little chap was in pain i said softly he feel a lot better when he when he wakes up i feel the cavity between the skin and cartilage with sulfonylamide then began to stitch the layers together using a row of buttons. You had to do something like this or the thing filled up again within a few days. When I began to operate on Urohamatomata, I used to pack the interior with gaze, the bandage the ear to the head. The owners often made little granny hats to try to keep the bandage in place, but a frisky dog usually had it off very soon. The buttons were a far better idea and kept the layers in close contact, lessening the chance of distortion. 
By lunchtime, Hamish had come around from the anesthetic and, though still slightly dopey, he already seemed to be relieved that his bulging ear had been deflated. Miss Waterman had gone, Western man, had gone away for the day and was due to pick him up in that evening. The little dog, curled in his basket, waited patiently. At tea time, Seifert glanced across the table at his brother. I'm going off to Bronton for a few hours, Tristan, he said. I want you to stay in the house and give Miss Western man her dog when she arrives. I don't know just when she'll come. He scooped up a spoonful of jam. You can keep an eye on the patient and do a bit of studying, too. It's about time you had a night at home. Tristan nodded. Right, I'll do that. But I could see he wasn't enthusiastic. When Cedar had driven away, Tristan rubbed his chin and gazed reflectively through the French window into the darkening garden. This is distinctly awkward, Jim. Why? Well, Lydia has tonight off, and I promised to see her. He whistled a few bars under his breath. It seems a pity to waste the opportunity just when things are building up nicely. I got a strong feeling that girl fancy me, fancies me. In fact, she's nearly eating out of my hand. I looked at him, wondering. My God, I thought you wanted a bit of peace and quiet and an early bed after last night. Not me, he said. I'm raring to go again. And indeed, he looked fresh and fit, eyes sparkling and rose back in his cheeks. Look, Jim, he went on. I don't suppose you could stick around with this dog. I shrugged it. Sorry, Tris. I'm going back to see the cow of Ted Binns right at the top of the dale. I'll be away for nearly two hours. For a few moments, he was silent. Then he raised a finger. I think I have the solution. It's quite simple. In fact, it's perfect. I'll bring Lydia in here. What? Into the house? Yes, into the very room. I can put Hamish in his basket by the fire, and Lydia and I can occupy the sofa. Marvelous. What could be nicer on a cold winter night? Cheap, too. But Tris, how about Seafried's lecture this morning? What if he comes home early and catches the two of you here? Tristan lit a woodbine and blew out an expansive cloud. Not a chance. Don't worry about such tiny things, Jim. He's always late when he goes to Broughton. There's no problem at all. Well, please yourself, I said, but I think you're asking for trouble. Anyway, shouldn't you be doing a bit of bacteriology? The exams are getting close. He smiled surfically through the smoke. Oh, I'll have a quick read through it all in good time. I couldn't argue with him there. I always had to go over a thing about six times before I finally sank in. But with his brain, the quick read would no doubt suffice. I went out on my call. I got back about 8 o'clock and I opened the front door. My mind was far from Tristan. Ted Ben's cow wasn't responding to my treatment. And I was beginning to wonder if I was on the right track. When in doubt, I liked to look the subject up. And the books were on the shelf in the sitting room. I hurried along the pathway and threw open the door. For a moment, I stood there bewildered, trying to reorient my thoughts. The sofa was drawn close to the bright fire. The atmosphere was heavy with cigarette smoke and the scent of perfume, but there was nobody to be seen. The most stri striking feature was the long curtain over the French window. It was wafting slowly downwards, as though some object had just hurtled through it at a great speed. I trotted over the carpet and peered out in dark garden. From somewhere in the gloom, I heard a scuffing noise. 
a thud and a muffled cry. Then there was a pitter-patter followed by a shrill yelping. I stood for a time listening. Then as my eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, I walked down the path under the high brick wall to the yard at the foot. The yard door was open, as were the big double doors in the back lane, but there was no sign of life. Slowly, I retraced my steps to the warm oblong of light at the foot of the tall old house. I was about to close the French window when I heard a steadily movement and an urgent whisper. Is that you, Jim? Trish, where the hell have you sprung from? The young man tiptoed from past me into the room and looked around him anxiously. It was you then, not Siegfried. Yes, I just come in. He flopped on the sofa and sunk his head on his hands. Oh, damn, I was just lying here a few minutes ago with Lydia in my arms, at peace with the world. Everything was wonderful, and then I heard the front door open. But you knew I was coming back? Yes, and I'd given you a shout. But for some reason, I thought, God help us, it's Siegfried. It sounded like his steps in the passage. Then what? He turned his hair around with his fingers. Oh, I panicked. I was whispering lovely things into Lydia's ear. Then the next second, I grabbed her, threw her off the couch and out the French window. I heard a thud. Yes, that was Lydia falling into the rockery. And then some sort of high-pitched cries. He sighed and closed his eyes. That was Lydia in the rose bushes. She doesn't know the geography of the place. Poor, la poor lass. Gosh, Trish, I said, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have burst in on you like that. I was thinking of something else. He was whirly and put on a hand on my shoulder. Not your fault, Jim. Not your fault. You didn't warn me. You did warn me. He reached for his cigarette. I don't know how I'm going to face that girl again. I just chucked her out in the lane and told her to beat it home with all the speed. She must think I'm stone balming. He gave a hollow groan. groan. I try to be cheerful. Oh, you'll get around her again. You'll have a laugh about it later. But he wasn't listening. His eyes wide with horror were staring past me. Slowly he raised a trembling finger and pointed towards the fireplace. His mouth worked for a few seconds before he spoke. Christ, Jim, is gone, he gasped. For a moment, I thought the shock had deranged him. Well, gone, what, what's gone? The bloody dog. He was there when I dashed outside right there. I looked down at the empty basket and a cold hand clutched at me. Oh, no. Oh, he must have gotten out through the window, open window. We're in trouble. We rushed into the garden and searched in vain. We came back for torches and searched once more, prowling around the yard and back lane, shouting the little dog's name with diminishing hope. After ten minutes, we trailed back to the brightly lit room and stared at each other. Tristan was the first to voice our thoughts. What do we tell Miss Western Man when she calls? I shook my head. My mind fled from the thought of informing the lady that we had lost her dog. Just at that moment, the front door bell pealed in the passage, and Tristan almost leaped in the air. Oh, God, he quavered. That'll be her now. Go and see her, Jim. Tell her it was my fault, anything you like, but I daren't, darn't, I darn't face her, but I daren't face her. I squared my shoulders, marched over the long stretch of tiles, and opened the door. It wasn't Mrs. Wisterman. It was a well-built platinum blonde, and she glared at me angrily. Where's Tristan? She rapped in a voice which told me 
We had more than one tough female to deal with tonight. Well, he's her. Oh, I know he's in there. As she brushed past me, I noticed she had a, a smear of soil on her cheek and her hair was sadly disarranged. I followed her into the room where she talked up to my friend. Look at my bloody stockings, she burst out. They're ruined. Tristan peered nervously at the shapely legs. I'm sorry, Lydia. I'll get you another pair, honestly. Love, I will. You better, you bugger, she replied. And don't love me. I've never been so insulted in my life. What did you think you were playing at? It was all a misunderstanding. Let me explain. Tristan advanced on her with a brave attempt at a winning smile, but she backed away. Keep your distance, she said frigidly. I had had enough for you for one night. She swept out and Tristan leaned his head against the mantel piece, the end of a lovely friendship, Jim. Then he took, he shook himself. But we got to find that dog. Come on. I set off in one direction and he went in the other. It was a moonless night of impenetrable darkness and we were looking for a jet black dog. I think we both knew it was hopeless, but we had to try. In a little town like Doroby, you are, are soon out on the country roads where there are no lights. And as I stumbled around, peering vainly over invisible fields, the utter pointlessness of the activity became more and more obvious. Occasionally, I came within Tristan's orbit and heard him dis despairing cries echoing over the empty landscape. Hamish! 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 After half an hour, we met at Skadale. Tristan faced me, and as I shook my head, he seemed to shrink within himself. His chest heaved as he fought for breath. Obviously, he had been running while I had been walking, and I suppose that was natural enough. We were both in an awkward situation, but the final devastation blow would inevitably fall on him. Well, we better get out of the road again, he gasped, and as a, he spoke, the front door bell rang again. The color drained rapidly from his face, and he clutched my arms. That must be Mrs. Western man this time. God Almighty, she's coming in. Rapid footsteps sounded in the passage, and the sitting room door opened. But it wasn't Mrs. Western man. It was Lydia again. She trotted over to the sofa, reached underneath, and extracted her handbag. She didn't say anything, but merely shriveled Tristan with a sidelong glance before leaving. What a night, he moaned, putting a hand to his forehead. I can't stand much more of this. Over the next hour, we made innumerable sorties, but we couldn't find Hamish, and nobody else seemed to have seen him. I came in to find Tristan collapsed in an armchair. His mouth hung open, and he showed every sign of advanced exhaustion. I shook my head, and he shook his, and I heard the telephone. I lifted the receiver, listened for a minute, and turned to the young man. I got to go out, Trish. Mrs. Drew, old pony, has colic again. He reached out a hand from the depths of his chair. You're not going to leave me, Jim. Sorry, I must, but I won't be long. It's only a mile away. But what if Mrs. Western man comes? I shrugged it. You'll just have to apologize, Hamish. is bound to turn up maybe in the morning. You make it sound easy. He ran a hand inside his collar. And another thing, how about Siegfried? What if he arrives and asks about the dog? What do I tell him? Oh, I shouldn't worry about that, I replied airily. Just say you were too busy on the sofa with the drover's barmaid to bother about 
such things, he'll understand. <laughs> but my attempt at jocularity fell flat. Jocularity. The young man fixed me with a whole eye and ignited a quivering woodbine. I believe I've told you this before, Jim, but there's a nasty, cruel streak in you. <laughs> Mrs. Drew Pony had almost recovered when I got there, but I gave him a mild sedative injection before turning for home. On the way back, I, I thought a thought struck me, and I took a road round the edge of the town to the row of modern bungalows where Mrs. Westerman lived. I parked the car and walked up the path to number 10. And there was Hamish in the porch, coiled up comfortably on the mat, looking up at me with mild surprise as I hoovered over him. Come on, lad, I said. You got more sense than we had. Why didn't we think of this before? I deposited him on the passenger seat, and, and as I drove away, he hoisted his paws on the dash and gazed out interestedly at the road unfolding in the headlights. Truly a phlegmatic little hound. Phlegmatic. Outside Skagdale, I house, I tucked him under my arm and was about to turn the handle of the front door when I paused. Tristan had notched up a long succession of successful pranks against me, fake telephone calls, the ghost in my bedroom, and many others. And in fact, good friends as we were, he never neglected a chance to take the Mikey out of me, the Mickey. In this situation, with the position reversed, he would be merciless. I put my finger on the bell and leaned on it for several long seconds. For some time, there was neither sound nor movement from within, and I pictured the cowering figure mustering his courage before marching to his doom. Then the light came on in the passage, and I peered expectantly, though the glass, a nose appeared around the far corner, followed very gingerly by a weary eye. By degrees, the full face inched into view, and then when Tristan recognized my grinning, countenance he unleashed a cry of rage and bounded along the passage with upraised fist. I really think that in his distraught state he would have attacked me but the sight of Hamish banished all else. He grabbed the hairy creature and began to fondle, fondle him. Good little dog, nice little dog. He croned as he trotted through to the sitting room. What a beautiful thing you are. He laid him lovingly in the basket and Hamish after a hee-ho here, we are again glanced around, put his head along his side, and promptly went to sleep. Tristan fell limply into the armchair and gazed at me with glazed eyes. Well, we're saved, Jim, he whispered, but I'll never be the same after tonight. I run bloody miles, and I nearly lost my voice with shouting. I tell you, I'm about knackered. I was... I, too, was vastly relieved, and the nearness of catastrophe was brought home to us when Mrs. Westerman arrived within ten minutes. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, she cried as Hamish leaped at her, mouth open, short tail waggling furiously. I've been so worried about you all day. She looked tentatively at the year with its rows of buttons. Oh, it does look a lot better without the horrid swelling. And what a nice neat job you have made thank you mr harry and thank you too young man tristan who has staggered to his feet bowed slightly as i showed the lady out bring him back in six weeks to have the stitches out i called to her as she left then i rushed back into the room seafried just pulled up outside you better look as if you've been working he rushed to the bookshelf pulled down gager and davis 
bacteriology and a notebook and divided into a chair and dived into a chair. When his brother came in, he was utterly engrossed. Seafried moved over to the fire and warmed his hands. He looked pink and mellow. I've just been speaking to Mrs. Westerman, he said. She's really pleased. Well done, both of you. Thank you, I said, but Tristan was too busy to reply, scanning the pages anxiously and scribbling repeatedly in the notebook. Seafried walked behind the young man's chair and looked down at the open volume. Ah, yes, Clostridium septic, he murmured, smiling indulgently. That's a good one to study. It keeps coming up in exams. He rested a hand briefly on his brother's shoulder. I'm glad to see you at work. You've been ranked racking about too much lately and it's getting you down at night at your books will have been good for you a night at your books will have been good for you he yawned stretched and made for the door oh i'm off to bed i'm rather sleepy he paused with his hand on the door you know tristan i quite envy you there's nothing like a nice restful evening at home the situation of a patient escaping is by no means unique it is something which has happened to many vets, particularly in the 30s when small animals worked with very much a sideline and there were a few organized arrangements for hospitalization. It was especially traumatic when a formidable people like Miss Westerman and Seaford were involved. It is interesting to record another of the satisfying little operations, the treatment of an oral hematoma a very quick relief from pain. I also rallied the chance to chronicle a typical vignette from Tristan's love life. And that was the reading of page of number 40, Tristan's life. James Harriet, Dog Stories. Chapter 20, The Dim Mocks. D-I-M-M-O-C-K-A-S, Dimmox. A full surgery, but the ripple satisfaction as I survey the pack rows of heads waned quickly as a realization dawned. It was only the Dimmox again. I first encountered the Dimox one evening when I had a call to a dog which had been knocked down by a car. The address was down in the old part of the town and I was cruising slowly along the row of decaying cottages looking for the number when a door burst open and three shock-headed children ran into the street and waved me down frantically. He is here. He's in here, mister. They grasped in unison as I got out and then began immediately to put me in the picture. It's Bonzo, Bonzo, eh? A car in him. We had to carry him in, mister. They all got their words in as I opened the garden gate and struggled up the path with the three of them hanging on to my arms and tugging at my coat. And route, I gazed in wonder at the window of the house where a mass of other young faces mouthed at me and a tangle of arms gesticulated. Once through the door, which opened directly into the living room, I was swamped by a rush of bodies and borne over to the counter, to the corner where I saw my patient. <clears throat> Bonzo <clears throat> was sitting upright on a ragged blanket. 
He was a large, shaggy animal of intermediate breed, and though at a glance there seemed to be much alien him, there didn't seem to be anything alien him. <clears throat> he wore a pathetic expression of self-pity. Since everybody was talking at once, I decided to ignore them and carry out my examination. I worked my way over legs, pelvis, rib, and spine, no fractures. His mucous membranes were a good color. There was no evidence of internal injury. In fact, the only thing I could find was slight bruise over the left shoulder. Bronzo had sat like a statue as I felt him over. But as I finished, he toppled over to the side and lay looking at me apologetically, his tail thumping on the blanket. <clears throat> You're a big soft dog, that's what you are, I said, and the tail thumped faster. I turned and viewed the throng and after a moment or two, managed to pick up the parents. Mom was fighting her way to the front while at the rear, Dad, a diminutive figure, was beaming at me over the heads. I did a little bit of shushing, and when the babble died down, I addressed myself to Mr. Mrs. Dimmock. I think he's been lucky, I said. I can't find any serious injury. I think the car must have bowled, bowled him over and knocked the wind out of him for a minute, or he may have been suffering from shock. The uproar broke out again. Will he die, mister? Will he die? What's the matter with him? What are you going to do? I gave Bonzo an injection of a mild sedative while he lay a rigid, a picture of canine suffering. With the tousled heads looking down at him with a deep concern and innumerable little hands poking out and caressing him. Mrs. Dimmock produced a basin of hot water and while I washed my hands, I was able to make a rough assessment of the household. I counted 11 <clears throat> little Dimmocks from a boy in his early teens down to a grubby face infant crawling around on the ground. And judging by the significant bulge in Mom's midriff, the number was soon to be augmented. They were clad in a motley selection of hand-me-downs, darn pullovers, patched trousers, tattered dresses, yet the general atmosphere in the house was an unconfined Joy de vivre. Bonzo wasn't the only animal that, and I st stared in disbelief as another biggish dog and a cat with two half-grown kittens appeared from among the crowding legs and feet. I would have thought that the problem of filling the human mouths would have been difficult enough without importing several animals. But the Denmarks didn't worry about such things. They did what they wanted to do, and they got by. Dad, I learned later, had never done any work within living memory. He had a bad back and lived what seemed to me a reasonable, gracious life, roaming interestedly around town by day and enjoying a quiet beer and a game of dominoes in a corner of the four horseshoes by night. I saw him quite often. He was easy to pick out because he invariably carried a walking stick which gave him an air of dignity, and he always walked briskly and purposefully as though he was going somewhere important. I took a final look at Bonzo 
still stretched on the blanket, looking at me with soulful eyes. Then I struggled towards the door. I don't think there's anything to worry about, I shouted above the chattering, which had speedily broken out again, but I'll look in tomorrow and make sure. When I drew up outside the house next morning, I could see Bonzo lolloping around the garden with several of the children. They were passing a ball from one to another, and he was leaping ecstatically high in the air to try to intercept it. He was clearly none the worse for his accent, but when he saw me opening the gate, his tail went down, and he dropped almost to his knees and slunked into the house. The children received me rapturously. Rapturously. You made him better, mister. You made him better. He's all right now, isn't he? He's all right. Big breakfast this morning, mister. He ate. I went inside with little hands clutching at my coat. Bonzo was sitting bolt upright in his blanket in the same attitude as the previous evening. But as I approached, he slowly collapsed onto his side and lay looking at me with martyred expression. I laughed as I knelt by him. You're the original old soldier, Bonzo, but you can't fool me. I saw you out there. I gently touched the bruised shoulder and the big dog trembling closed his eyes as he resigned himself to his fate. Then when I stood up and he realized he wasn't going to have another injection, he leaped to his feet and bounded away into the garden. There was a chorus of delightful cries from the Denmarks and they turned and looked at me with undisguised admiration. Clearly, they considered that I had plucked Bonzo from the jaws of death. Mr. Dinbach stepped forward from the mass. You'll send me a bill, won't you, he said, with the dignity that was peculiar to him. My first glance last night had decided me that this was a no-charging job, and I hadn't even written it in the book, but I nodded solemnly. Very well, Mr. Dinbach, I'll do that. And throughout our long association, though no money ever changed hands, he always said the same thing. You'll send me a bill, won't you? This was the beginning of my close relationship with the Denmarks. Obviously, they had taken a fancy to me and wanted to see as much as possible of me. Over the succeeding weeks and months, they brought in a very selection of dogs, cats, budge, geese, rabbits at frequent intervals, and when they found that my services were free, they stepped up the number of visits, and when one came, they all came. I was actually trying to expand the small animal side of the practice, and increasingly my hopes were raised momentarily, then dashed when I opened the door and saw a packed waiting room. And, and in, it increased the congregation when they started bringing their auntie, Mrs. Pounder, from down the road with them to see what a nice chap I was. Mrs. Ponder, a fat lady who always wore a greasy velour hat, had perched on and an untidy mound of hair, evidently shared the family tendency to fertility and usually brought a few of her own ample brood with her. This is how it was this particular morning I swept the assembled company with my eye, but could discern only beaming dimmocks and pounders. And this time I couldn't even pick out my patient. 
Then the assembly parted and spread out as though by a prearranged signal, and I saw little Nellie Dinlock with a tiny puppy on her knee. Nellie was my favorite. Mind you, I like all the family. In fact, they were such nice people that I always enjoy their visits. After the first disappointment, Mom and Dad were always courteous and cheerful, and the children, though boisterous, were never ill-mannered. They were happy and friendly, and if they saw me in the street, they would have waved madly and go on waving till I was out of sight. And I saw them often because they were continually scurrying around the town doing odd jobs, delivering milk or papers. Best of all, they loved their animals and were kind to them. But I say Nellie was my favorite. She was about nine and had suffered an attack of infatible paralysis, as it used to be called when very young. It had left her with a pronounced limp and a frailty with, which set her apart from her robust brothers and sisters. Her painfully thin legs seemed almost too fragile to carry her around, but above the pinched face, her hair, the color of ripe corn, flown to her shoulders and eyes. Though slightly crossed, gazed out calm and limpid blue through steel-rimmed spectacles. What's that you got, Nellie? I asked. It's a little dog, she almost whispered. It's mine. You mean he's your very own? She nodded proudly. Hey, he's mine. He doesn't belong to your brothers and sisters too? Nay, he's mine. Rose and Dimmock and Pounder Heads nodded in eager acquiescence as Nellie lifted the puppy to her cheek and looked at me with a smile of a strange sweetness. It was a smile that always tugged at my heart, full of a child's artless happiness and trust, but with something else which was poignant and maybe had to do with the way Nellie was. Well, he looks like a fine dog to me, I said. He's a spaniel, isn't he? She ran her hand over the little head. A, a cocker. Mr. Brown said he was a cocker. There was a slight disturbance at the back and Mr. Dinmock appeared from the crush. He gave a respectful cough. He's a proper pure breed, Mr. Harriet, he said. Mr. Brown from the bank, bitch, had a litter and he gave him this unto Nellie. He tucked his stick under his arm and pulled a long envelope from inside the pocket. He handed it to me with a flourish. That's his pedigree. I read it through and whistled softly. He's a real blue-blooded hound, all right, and I see he's got a long name. Darby Tobias III. My word, that sounds great. I looked at the little girl again, and what do you call him, Nellie? Toby, she said softly. I call him Toby. I laughed, all right, then. What's the matter with Toby anyway? Why have you brought him? He's been sick, Mr. Harriet. Mrs. Denmark spoke from somewhere around the heads. He can't keep nothing down. Well, I know what that'll be. He has been worm. No, I don't think so. I should think he just needs a pill, I said, but I'll bring him through and I'll have a look at him, bring him in. Our other clients were usually content to send one representative through with their animal 
but the Denmarks all had to come. I marched along with the crowd behind me, feeling the passage from wall to wall. Our consulting come operating room was quite small, and I watched with some apprehension as the procession filled in after me. But they all got in. Mrs. Pounder, her velour hat slightly askew, squeezing herself in with some difficulty at the rear. My examination of the pulpit took longer than usual as I had to fight my way to the thermometer on the trolley, then struggle in the other direction to get the telescope from his hook on the wall. But I finished at last. Well, I can't find anything wrong with him, I said, so I'm pretty sure he just has a tummy full of worms. I'll give you a pill now, and you must give it to him first thing tomorrow morning. Like a football match, turning out, the mass of people surged along the passage and into the street, and another Denmark visit had come to an end. I forgot the incident immediately because there was nothing unusual about it. The pot-bellied appearance of the puppy made my diagnosis a formality. I didn't expect to see him again. But I was wrong. A week later, my surgery was once more overflowing, and I had another squash in session with Toby in the little back room. My pill had evacuated a few worms, but he was still vomiting, still distended. Are you giving him five very small meals a day, as I told you, I asked. I received empathetic affirmative, and I believed them. The Dimmocks really took care of their animals. There was nothing else here, yet I couldn't find it. Temperature normal, lungs clear, abdomen negative on palpitations. I couldn't make it out. I, I dispensed a bottle of our antacid mixture with a feeling of defeat. A young puppy like this shouldn't need such a thing. This was the beginning of a frustrating period. There would be a span of two or three weeks then, I would think. The trouble had righted itself. Then, without warning, the place would be full of Dimmocks and Pounders, and I'll be back where I started. And all the time, Toby was growing thinner. I tried everything, gastric sedatives, variation of diet, quack remedies. I interrogated the Denmarks repeatedly about the character of the vomiting, how long after eating, what were the intervals between, and I received Varen replies. Sometimes he brought his food straight back, and others he retained it for several hours. I got nowhere. It must have been over eight weeks later. Toby would be about four months old when I again viewed the assembled Denmarks with a sinking heart. Their visit had become depressing affairs, and I could not foresee anything better today as I opened the waiting room door and allow myself to be almost carried along the passage. This time it was Dad who was the last to wedge himself into the consulting room. Then Nellie placed the little dog on the table. I felt an inward lurch of sheer misery. Toby had grown despite his disability and was now a grim caricature of a cocker spaniel. The long silky ears drooping from an almost fleshy skull the spinely legs pathetically feathered. I had thought Nellie was thin, but her pet had undone her. And he wasn't just thin, he was trembling slightly as he stood arched back on the smooth surface. 
and his face had the dull inward look of an animal which had lost interest. The little girl ran her head along the jutting ribs and the pale squinting eyes looked up at me through the steel spectacles with that smile which pulled at me more painfully than ever before. She didn't she didn't seem worried. Probably she had no idea how things were, but whatever she had or not, I knew I'd never be able to tell her that her dog was slowly dying. I rubbed my eyes wearily. What has he had to eat today? Nellie answered herself. He had some bread and milk. How long ago was that, I asked. But before anybody could reply, the little dog vomited, sending the half-digested stomach contents soaring in a grateful arc to land two feet away on the table. I swung around on Mrs. Dimock. Does he always do it like that? Eh, he mostly does, sending a flying out like, but why didn't you tell me? The poor lady looked flustered. Well, I don't know. I I held up my hand. That's all right, Mrs. Dimock. Never mind. It occurred to me that all the way through my total ineffectual treatment of this dog, not a single Dimock or Pounder had uttered a word of criticism, so why should I start to complain now? But I knew what Toby's trouble was now. At last, at long last, I knew. In any case, my present-day colleagues reading this may think I have been more than usually thick-headed in my handling of this case. I would like to offer in my defense that such limited textbooks as there were in those days made only a cursory reference to pyloric stenosis, narrowing of the exit of the stomach where it joins the small intestine. And if they did something about treatment, but surely I thought somebody in England was ahead of the books. There must be people who were actually doing this operation. And if there were, I had a feeling one might not be too far away. I worked my way through the crush and trotted along the passage to the phone. Is that you, Granville? Jim, a bellow of pure unloyed joy. How are you, laddie? Very well, how are you? Absolutely tip-top, old son. Never better. Granville, I got a four-month-old spaniel pup I like to bring through to you. He's got pyloric stenosis. Oh, lovely. I'm afraid the little thing just about on its last legs, a bag of bones. Splendid, splendid. This is because I've been mucking about for four weeks in ignorance. Fine, just fine. And the owners are very poor family. They can't pay at anything, I'm afraid. Wonderful, wonderful. I hesitated for a moment. Granville, do you er, you have operated on these cases before? I did five yesterday. What? A deep rumble of laughter. I do, but yes, old son, but you needn't worry. I've done a few, and it isn't such a bad job. Well, that's great. I looked at my watch. It's half past nine now. I'll get Seifer to take over my morning round, and I'll see you about 11. Granville had been called out when I arrived, and I hung around his surgery till I heard the expensive sound of the Bentley purring into the yard. Through the window, I saw yet another magnificent pipe leaning behind the wheel. Then my colleague in an impeccable pinstripe suit 
which made him look like the governor of the Bank of England, paced majestically towards the side door. Good to see you, Jim, he exclaimed, wringing my hands warmly. Then before removing his jacket, he took his pipe from his mouth and regarded it with a trace of anxiety for a second before giving it a polish with his yellow cloth and placing it tenderly in a drawer. It wasn't long before I was under the lamp in the operating room, bending over Toby's small ostrich form, while Granville, the other Granville Bennett, worked with fierce concentration inside the abdomen of the little animal. You see the gross gastric dilatation, dilatation, he murmured, classical lesion. He gripped the pylorus and poised his scalpel. Now I'm going through the serious serous coat, a quick deaf incision, a bit of a blunt dissection here for the muscle fibers. Down, down a little more. Ah, there it is. Can you see it? The mucosa bulging into the cleft. Yes, yes, you're right. That's what you've got to arrive at. I peered down at the tiny tube, which had been the site of all Toby's trouble. Is that all then? That's all, laddie. He stepped back with a grin. The obstruction is relieved now, and you can take bets that this little chap will start to put weight on now. That's wonderful, Granville. I'm really grateful. Nonsense, Jim. It was a pleasure. You can do the next one yourself now, eh? He laughed, seized needle and sutures, and sewed up the abdominal muscles and skin at an impossible pace. A few minutes later, he was in the office pulling on his jacket. Then, as he filled his pipe, he turned to me. I got a little plan for the rest of the morning, laddie. I shrank away from him and threw up a protective hand. Well, no, eh? It's kind of you, Granville, but I really, I honestly must get back. We're very busy, you know. I can't leave Seaford too long. We'll be piling up. I stopped because I felt I was beginning to gibber. My colleague looked down. All I meant, old son, was that we want you to come to lunch. Zoe is expecting you. Oh, oh, I see. Well, that's very kind. We're not going anywhere else then. Anywhere else? He blew out his cheeks and spread his arms wide. Of course not. I just have to call in at my branch surgery on the way. Branch surgery? I didn't know you had one. Oh, yes, just a stone's throw from my house. He put an arm around my shoulder. Well, let's go, shall we? As I lay back, cradle in the Bentley's luxury, I dwelt happily on the thought that at last I was going to meet Zoe Bennett when I was my normal self. She would learn this time that I wasn't a perpetual drunken oaf. In fact, the next hour or two seemed full of rosy promise. An excellent lunch illumined by my witty conversation and polished manners. Then back with Toby, magically resuscitated to Dorothy. I smiled to myself when I thought of Nellie's face when I told her her pet was going to be able to eat and grow strong and playfully like any other pup. I was still smiling when the car pulled up on the outskirts of Grantsville home village. I glanced idly through the window at a low stone building which led panes and a wooden sign dangling over the entrance. It read, Oak, O Oak Tree Inn. 
I turned quickly to my companion. I thought we were going to your branch surgery. Gambril gave me a smile of a childish innocence. Oh, that's what I call this place. It's so near to home, and I transact quite a lot of business here. He patted my knee. We'll just pop in for an appetizer, eh? Now, wait a minute, I stammered, gripping the sides of my seat tightly. I just can't be late today. I much rather. Granville raised a hand. Jimmy, laddie, he, we won't be in for long. He looked at his watch. It's exactly 1230, and I promise Zoe will be home at 1 o'clock. She's cooking roast beef, Yorkshire pudding, and it would take a braver man than me to let her pudding go flat. I guarantee we'll be in the house at 1 o'clock on the dot, okay? I hesitated. I couldn't come to much harm in a half an hour. It couldn't. I climbed out of the car. As we went into the pub, a large man who had been leaning on the counter turned and exchanged enthusiastic greetings with Mr. With my colleague. Albert, cried Granville. Meet Jim Harriet from Darrowby. Jim, this is Albert Wainwright, the landlord of the wagon and horses over at Matherley. In fact, he's the president of the licensed Victuallers Association this year. Aren't you, Albert? The big man grinned and nodded, and for a moment I felt overwhelmed by the two figures on either side of me. It was difficult to describe the hard, bulky tissue of Granville's construction, but Mr. Wainwright was equivocally fat. A check jacket hung over to display an enormous expanse of striped-shirted abdomen, overflowing the waistband of his trousers. Above a gay bow tie, cheerful eyes twinkled at me from a red face, and when he spoke, his tone was rich and fruity. He embodied the rich ambience of the term licensed victualler. I began to sip at the half pint of beer I had ordered, but when another appeared in two minutes, I saw I was going to fall hopelessly behind and switch to the whiskeys and sodas which the others were drinking. And my undoing was that both my companions appeared to have standing account here. They downed their drinks, tapped softly on the counter, and said, Yes, please, Jack, whereupon three more glasses appeared with magical speed. I never had a chance to buy a round. In fact, no money ever changed hands. It was a quiet, friendly little session with Albert and Granville carrying on on a conversation of the utmost good humor, punctuated by the almost soundless taps on the bar. And as I fought to keep up with the two virtuous the taps came more and more frequently to a seam to hear them every few seconds. Granville was a good at his word. When it was nearly one o'clock, he looked at his watch. Got to be off now, Albert. He's always expecting us right now. And as the car rolled up to a top outside the house, dead on time, I realized with a dull despair that it had happened to me again. Within me, a witch brew was beginning to bubble, sending choking fumes into my brain. I felt terrible, and I knew for sure I would get rapidly worse. Granville, fresh and debonair as ever, leaped out and led me into the house. Zoe, my love, he warbled, embracing his wife as she came through from the kitchen. When she disengaged herself, she came over to me. 
She was wearing a flowered apron, which made her look, if possible, even more attractive. Hello, she cried and gave me the look which she shared with her husband, as though meeting James Harriet was an unbelievable boom. Lovely to see you again. I'll get lunch now, I replied with a foolish grin, and she skipped away. Flopping into an armchair, I listened to Granville pouring out steadily over at the sideboard. He put a glass in my hand and sat in another chair. Immediately, the obsessed Staffordshire Terrier bonded on his lap. Feebles, my little pet, he sang joyfully. Daddy's skin is home again, and he pointed playfully at the tiny Yorkier who was sitting at his feet, barking, bearing his feet repeatedly in a series of ecstatic smiles. And I see you, my little Victoria, I see you. By the time I was ushered to the table, I was like a man in a dream, moving sluggishly, speaking with slurred deliberation. Granville poised himself over a vast sirloin, stropped his knife briskly, then began to hack away rootlessly. He was a prodigal server and piled about two pounds of meat on my plate. Then he started on the Yorkshire puddings. Instead of a single big one, Zoe had made a large number of little ones, as the farmer's wives often did. Delicious golden cups, crisply brown round the sides. Granville heaped about six of these by the side of the meat as I watched stupidly when Zoe passed me the gravy boat. With an effort, I took careful grip of the handle, closed one eye, and began to pour. For some reason, I felt I had to fill up each of the little puddings with gravy and oldishly direct the stream into one, then another, till they were all overflowing. Once I missed and spilled a few drops of the fragrant liquid on the tablecloth, I looked up guiltily at Zoe and giggled. Zoe giggled back, and I had the impression that she felt that though I was a peculiar individual, there was no harm in me. I just had this terrible weakness that I was never sober day or night, but I wasn't sure, such a bad fellow at heart. It usually took me a few days to recover from a visit to Granville, and by the following Saturday, I was convalescing nicely. I was convalescing nicely. It happened that I was in the marketplace and I saw a large concourse of people crossing the cobbles. At first, I thought from the mixture of children and adults that it must be a school outing, but on a closer inspection, I realized it was the Denmarks and Pounders going shopping. When they saw me, they diverted their course and I was engulfed by a human wave. Look at him now, mister. Look at him. He's eating like a horse now. He's going to get fat soon, mister. The delight cries rang around me. Nellie had Toby on a lead, and as I bent over the little animal, I could hardly believe how a few days had altered him. <clears throat> he was still skinny, but the hopeless look had gone. <clears throat> he, <clears throat> he was perky, ready to play, and was just a matter of time now. His little mistress ran her hand again and again over the smooth brown coat. You're are proud of your little dog, aren't you, Nellie? I said, and the gentle squinting eyes turned on me. Yes, I am, she smiled and smiled again, because he's mine. The end. 
I'm so glad I got the Denmark family down on paper. They were some of the truest animal lovers I have ever known. And dealing with the crowd of them at one time, as I always did, gave a richness and warmth to every consultation. After seeing them, I used to feel strangely alone when meeting a solitary client. And of course, I had my wings singed, as always, when I came into contact with the immortal Granville Bennett. But to this day, I have never found a better way to relieve pyloric stenosis, stenosis than the one he showed me. Deanne. Thank you for coming on today for another heaping spoonful of James Harriet's dog stories. And today, I believe we left off one of the stories we haven't read is uh, page 21, excuse me, chapter 21, Magnus and Company. M-A-G-N-U-S, Magnus. <clears throat> there was one marvelous thing about the setup in Darby. I had the inestimable advantage of being a large animal practitioner with a passion for dogs and cats. So that although I spent most of my time in the wide outdoors of Yorkshire, there was always the captivating background of the household pits to make a contrast. I treated some of them every day, and it made it an extra interest in my life. Interest of a different kind, based on sentiment instead of commerce. And because of the way things were, it was something I could linger over and enjoy. I suppose with a very intensive small animal practice, it would be easy to regard the thing as a huge sausage machine, an endless procession of hairy forms to prod with. Hypodermic needles. But in Darwin, we got to know them all as individual entities. Driving through the town, I was able to identify my ex-patients without difficulty. Robert Johnson, recovered from his ear canker, coming out of the ironmongers with her mistress, Patch Walker, whose broken leg had healed beautifully. Balanced happily on the back of his owner's coal wagon or spot brakes, who was a bit of a rake anyway and would soon be tearing himself again on barbed wire, ambling all alone across the marketplace, cobbles in search of adventure. I got quite a kick out of recalling their ailments and mulling over their characteristics because they all had their own personalities and they were manifested in different ways. One of these was his personal reaction to me and my treatment. Most dogs and cats appear to bear me not the slightest ill will, despite the fact that I usually had to do something disagreeable to them. But there was an exception of all these was Magnus, the miniature dashbound from the drove's arms. You know, I read that story already. It's in here, Magnus, I don't remember. Let me go ahead and read. Wow, that's a long story. And then I read The Last Visit, I remember that one, Benjamin. Moving right along here. 
Cedric. I remember reading that one, number 23, with the farting uh, boxer, <laughs> the boxer dog. It's amazing how people love their dogs in this uh, high society, very well polite lady just fell in love with this dog and she just cared for him like it was a child. But he had a problem, farted all the time. So they gave him to the gardener and the gardener couldn't smell. And they both made a great, a great combination. Okay, our next story is number 25 called The Bandage Finger. Stories of James Harriet, animal, small animal and large animal fractioneer, fractioneer. Here we go. I was castrating pigs and Rory was holding them. There were several litters to do and I was in a hurry and failed to notice the Irish farm workers mounting apprehension. His young boss was catching the little animals and handing them to Rory where he, who held them upside down, gripped between his thighs and their legs apart. <clears throat> I read this one already. The scalpel came really close to uh, castrating the guy who was holding the piggies. <laughs> okay, story number 26. <clears throat> Chep's hobby, C-H-E-P-S, hobby. Mr. Bale's little place was situated about halfway along Highburn Village, and to get into the farmyard, you had to walk 20 yards or so between five-foot walls. On the left was the neighboring house, on the right, the front garden of the farm. In this garden, sheep lurked for most of the day. He was a huge dog, much larger than the average collie, in fact, I am convinced he was part Elsadian because though he had luxuriant black and white coat, there was something significant in the massive limbs and in the noble bronze-shaded head with its upstanding ears. He was quite different from the stringy little animals I saw on my daily round. <clears throat> As I walked between the walls, my mind was already in the byrie just visible as the far end of the yard because one of the Bailey's cows, Rose by name, had the kind of obscure digestive ailment which <clears throat> interferes with veterinarian surgeon's sleep. They are so difficult to diagnose. This animal had begun to grunt and go off her, her milk two days ago, and when I had seen her yesterday, I had flitted from one possibility to the other. Could be a wire, but the fort stomach was contracting well and there was plenty of ruminal sounds. Also, she was eating a little hay in a half-hearted way. Could it be impactation or a partial torsion of the gut? There was <clears throat> abdominal pain without a doubt and that nagging temperature of 102.5. That was damn like a wire. Of course, I could settle the whole thing by opening the cow up, but Mr. Bills was an old-fashioned type and didn't like the idea of my diving into his animals unless I was certain of my diagnosis. And I wasn't there. Was no getting away from that. I wasn't there. 
I was halfway down the alley between the walls with the hope right before me that my patient would improve. When from nowhere an appalling explosion of sound blasted into my ear. It was Chep again. The wall was just the right height for the dog to make a leap and bark into the ear of the passerby. It was a favorite gambit of his and I had been caught before, but never so successfully as now. My attention had been so far away and the dog had timed his jump to a split second so that his bark came at the highest point. His teeth only inches from my face and his voice <clears throat> befitted his size. A great bull bellow surging from the depths of his powerful chest and booming from his gasping jaws. I rose several inches into the air and when I descended, heart thumping, head singing, a glare over the wall, but as usual, I saw what the hairy form bounding away out of sight around the corner of the house. That was what puzzled me. Why did he do it? Was he a savage creature with evil design on me? Or was his idea of a joke? I never got near enough to him to find out. I wasn't in the best shape to receive bad news and that was what awaited me in the byre. I had only look at the farmer's face to know the cow was worse. <clears throat> I reckon she got a stoppage, Mr. Bales muttered gloomily. I gritted my teeth. The entire spectrum of abdominal disorders were lumped as stoppages by the older race of farmers. And <clears throat> the oil hadn't worked then. Nay, she's not about passing little hard bits. It's a proper stoppage, I tell you. Right, Mr. Bales, I said with a twisted smile. We'll have to try something stronger. I brought in from my car the gastric lavage outfit I loved so well and which has so sadly disappeared from my life. The long rubber stomach tube, the wooden gag with its leather strap to buckle behind the horns, as I pumped in the two gallons of warm water, rich in formalin and sodium chloride, I felt like Napoleon sending in the old guard at Waterloo. If this didn't work, nothing would. Next morning, I was driving down the single village street when I saw Mr. Bales coming out of the shop. I drew up and pushed my head out the window. How's Rose this morning, Mr. Bales? She rested her basket on the ground and looked down on me gravely. Oh, she's bad, Mr. Harriet. She's bad. My husband thinks she's going down fast. If you want to find him, you'll have to go across the field. There, he's mining the door in the little barn. A sudden misery enveloped me as I drove over to the gate leading into the field. I left the car in the road and lifted the latch. Damn, 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 I muttered as I trailed across the green. I had a nasty feeling that a little strategy was building up here. If this animal died, it would be a sickening blow to a small farmer with ten cows and a few pigs. I should be able to do something about it, and it was a depressing thought that I, that I was getting nowhere. And yet, the, despite it all, I felt peace stealing into my soul. It was as a large field and I could see the barn at the far end as I walked with the tall grass brushing my knees. 
It was a metal ready for cutting and suddenly I realized that it was high summer, the sun was hot and that every step brought the fragrance of clover and warm grass rising about me in the crystal freshness of the air. Somewhere nearby a field of broad beans was in full flower and as the exotic scent drifted across, I found myself inhaling with half-closed eyes as I thought, straining to discern the ingredients of the glorious melange. And then there was a silence. It was the most soothing thing of all, that and the feeling of being alone. I looked drowsily around at the empty green miles of sleeping under the sunshine. Nothing stirred. There was no sound. Then, without a warning, the ground at my feet erupted in an incredible blast of noise. For a dreadful moment, the blue sky was obscured by an enormous hairy form and a red mouth went in my face, almost screaming. I staggered back, and as I glared widely, I saw sheep disappearing at top speeds towards the gate, concealed in the deep herbage right in the middle of the field he had waited till he saw the whites of my eyes before making his assault chep disappearing at the top speed towards the gate whether he had been there by action or whether he had spotted me arriving and slunk into position i shall never know but from his point of view the result must have been immensely satisfactory because it was certainly the worst fright i have ever had I live a life which is well larded with scars and alarms, but this great dog rising bellowing from the empty landscape was something on his own. I have heard of cases where sudden terror and stress had caused involuntary evacuation of the bowels, and I know without question that this was the occasion when I came nearest to suffering that unhappy faith. I was still trembling when I reached the barn and hardly said a word as Mr. Bale led me back across the road to the farm. And it was like rubbing it in when I saw my patient. The flesh had melted from her and she stared at the wall apathetically from sunken eyes. The doom-laden grunt was louder. I decided to have one last go with the lavage It was still the strongest weapon in my armory, but this time I added two pounds of black treacle to the mixture. Nearly every farmer had a barrel of this stuff in his cowhouse in those days. I had only to go into the corner and turn the tap. It was not till the following afternoon that I drove into Highburn. I left the car outside the farm and was about to walk between the walls when I paused and stared at a cow in the field on the other side of the road. It was a pasture next to the hayfield of yesterday, and that cow was Rose. There could be no mistake. She was a fine, deep red with a distinctive white mark like a football on her left flank. I opened the gate, and within seconds, my cares dropped from me. She was wonderfully, miraculously improved. In fact, she looked like a normal animal. I walked up to her and scratched the root of her tail. She was a docile creature and merely looked around at me as she cropped the grass, and her eyes were no longer sunken but bright and full. 
As the wave of relief flooded through through me, I saw Mr. Bales climbing over the wall from the next field. He would still be mending that barn door. As he approached, I felt a pang of commiseration. I had to guard against any display of triumph. After all, the poor chap had been worried. No, it wouldn't do to preen myself unduly. Ah, good morning to you, Mr. Bales, I said expansively. Rose looks fine today, doesn't she? The farmer took up his cap and wiped his bra. Hey, she's a different cow now, all right. I don't think she needs any more treatment, I said. I hesitated, perhaps one little dig would do no harm. But it is a good thing I gave her that extra lavage yesterday. Yawn, pumping job, Mr. Bales raised his eyebrows. Oh, that I had not to do with it. What? What do you mean? I cure her, surely. Nay, lad, Jim Oakley cured her. Jim, what on earth? Hey, Jim was around here last night. He often comes in in the evening, and he looked. He took one look at the cow and told me what to do. I tell you, she was like dying. That pumping job hadn't done no good at all. He told me to give her a bloody good gallop around the field. What? Hey, that's what he said. He's seen him like that afore, and a good gal to put him right. So we got Rose out here and did as he said, and by God, it did the trick. She looked better right away. I drew myself up. And who, I asked frigidly, is Jim Oakley? He's the postman, of course. The postman? Eh? But he used to keep a few bees years ago. He's a very clever man, Wick stock is Jim no doubt but I assure you Mr. Bales the farmer said raise a hand say no more lad Jim put her right and there's no denying it I wish you seen him chasing her around he's as all as me but by God it did go he can run like hell can Jim he chuckled reminiscently I had had about enough during the farmer's eulogy I had been distractedly scratching the cow's tail and had soiled my hand in the process. Mustering the remains of my dignity, I nodded. I nodded to Mr. Bales. Well, I must be on my way. Do you mind if I go in the house to wash my hands? You go right in, he replied. Tis missus will get you some hot water. It seems to take a long time to reach the end of the wall. And I was about to turn right towards the door of the farmer's kitchen when from my left I heard the sudden rattle of a chain. Then a roaring creature launched itself at me, bay once mightily into my face and was gone. This time I thought my heart would stop. With my defenses at their lowest, I was in no state to withstand Chip. I had quite forgotten that Miss, Mrs. Bales occasionally tethered him in the current kennel at the entrance of discouraged, unwelcome visitors. And as I have half laid against the wall, the blood thundering in my ears, I looked dully at the long coil of chain on the cobbles. I had no time for people who lose their tempers with animals, but something, something snapped in my mind then. 
All my frustrations burst from me in torrent and incoherent shouts as I grabbed the chain and began to pull on it frenziedly. That dog which had tortured me was there in that kennel for for once I knew where to get at him and this time I was going to have the matter out with him. The kennel would be about 10 feet away and at first I saw nothing. There was only the dead weight at the end of the chain. <laughs> then as I hauled inexorably, a nose appeared, then a head, then all, all over the big animal hanging by his collar. <laughs> <laughs> he showed no desire to get up and greeted me, but I was mercilessly and dragged him inch by inch over the cobbles till he was lying at my feet. Besides myself, with rage, I crouched, shook my fist under his nose, and yelled at him from a few inches range. You big bugger, if you do that again to me, I'll knock your bloody head off. Do you hear me? I'll knock your bloody head off, clean off. Chep rolled frightened eyes at me and his tail flickered apologetically between his legs. When I continued to scream at him, he bared his upper teeth in an ingratiating grin and finally rolled on his back where he lay inert with half-closed eyes. So now I knew he was a softy. All his ferocious attack was just a game. I began to calm down, but for all that I wanted him to get the message. Right, mate, I said in a menacing whisper. I remember what I said. I let go the chain and gave a final shove. Now get back in there. Chep, almost on his knees, tail tucked well in, shot back into his kennel, and I turned to the farmhouse to wash my hands. I was surprised when about a month later I received another call to one of Mr. Bale's cows. I felt that after my performance with Rose, he would have called on the services of Jim Oakley for any further trouble. But no, his voice on the phone was a, as polite and friendly as ever, with not a hint that he had lost faith. It was strange. Leaving my car outside the farm, I looked wearily into the front garden before venturing between the walls. A faint twinkle of, of metal told me that Chep was lurking there in his kennel and I slowed my steps. I wasn't to be caught again. At the end of the alley, I paused, waiting, but as all I saw was the end of a nose which quietly withdrew as I stood there. So my outburst had gotten through to the big dog. He knew I wasn't going to stand any more nonsense from him. And yet, as I drove away after the visit, I didn't feel good about it. A victory over an animal is a hollow one and I had the uncomfortable feeling that I had deprived him of his chief pleasure. After all, every creature is entitled to some form of recreation, and though Chef's hobby could result in the occasional heartfelt failure it was, after all, his thing and part of him, the thought that I had crushed something out of his life was disquitting. One, I wasn't proud disquieting one so that when later that summer I was driving through Highburn I paused in anticipation outside the Bailey's farm the village street white and dusty slumbered under the afternoon sun 
In the blanketing silence, nothing moved except for one small man strolling towards the opening between the walls. He was fat and very dark, one of the tinkers from a camp outside the village, and he carried an armful of pots and pans. From my vantage point, I could see through the railings into the front garden where Chep was slinking noisily into a position beneath the stones. Fascinated, I watched as the man turned unhurriedly into the opening and the dog followed the course of the disembodied head along the top of the wall. As I expected, it all happened halfway along. The perfect time leap and the monetary pause of the summit, then the tremendous woof and the unsuspecting ear. It had its usual effect. I had a brief view of flaying arms and flying pots and pans followed by a prolonged metallic clatter. Then the little man reappeared with like a projectile, turned right and sped away from me up the street. Considering his almost wrong physique, he showed astonishing turn of speed, his little legs pistoning, and he did not pause till he disappeared into the shop at the far end of the village. I don't know why he went in there because he wouldn't find any stronger restorative than ginger pop. Chep, the dog, apparently well satisfied, wandered back over the grass and collapsed in a cool patch where an apple tree grew its shade over the grass. Head on paws, he waited in comfort for his next victim. I smiled to myself as I let in the clutch and moved off. I would stop at the shop and tell the little man that he could collect his paws and pants without the slightest fear of being torn into limb from limb. But my overriding emotion was one of relief that I had not cut the sparkle out of the big dog's life. Shep was still having fun. The fact that dogs clearly love to play or have some source of amusement makes me feel that people should really keep two dogs so that they would never be lonely. However, this is often inconvenient or impossible, so the more often an owner can play with his pet, the better. It is surprising that what can be done in this way, tug of war, retrieving, even hide and seek. Sometimes, of course, a dog will find his own entertainment as Chep did. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful story. Do you have a story? i like to hear it. Huh. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another story of James Harriet Dog Stories. This is called The Last Visit. I have farm animals on the background via YouTube. Thank you, YouTube. Make it more realistic on the next story I'm going to read. This one is called The Last Visit. Or Last Visit. Number 22. I suppose there was a wry rumor and humor in the fact that my call-up papers arrived on my birthday, but I didn't see the joke at that time. The event is preserved in my memory in a picture which is clear to me today as when I walked into our dining room that morning. Helen perched away up on a hot 
on her high stool at the end of the table, very still, eyes downcast, sad. By the side of my plate, my birthday present, a tin of Dobie's blue square tobacco, and next to it, a long envelope. I didn't have to ask what it contained. It had been, I had been expecting it for some time, but I still gave me a joe to find I had only a week before presenting myself at Lord's Cricket's Ground, St. John's Wood, London. And that week went by frightening speed. As I made my final plans, tidying up the loose ends in the practice, getting my Ministry of Agriculture form sent off, arranging for our new possessions to be taken to Helen's old home where she would stay a while I was away. Having decided that I would finish work at tea time on Friday, I had a call from Arno Summersgill at about 3 o'clock that afternoon on Friday. And I knew that would be very my very last job because it was always an exped expedition rather than a visit to his small holdings which clung to a bracken-strewn slope in the depths of the hills. I didn't speak directly to Arnold, but to Miss Thompson, the postmistress in Hainville Village. Mr. Summergill wants you to come and see his dog, she said over the phone. What's the trouble, I asked. I heard her mutter consultations at the far end. He says his leg's gone funny. Huh? Funny? What do you mean funny? Again, the quick babbles of voices. He said, it's kind of, it's sticking out. He says, all right, I said, I'll be along very soon. It was no good asking for the dog to be brought in. Arno had never owned a car, nor had he ever spoken on the telephone. All our conversations had been carried on through the medium of Miss Thompson. Arno would mount his <clears throat> rusty bicycle, pedal to Hainbelly, and tell his troubles to the postmistress. And the symptoms, they were typically vague, and I didn't suppose there would be anything either funny or sticking out about the leg when I saw it. Anyway, I thought as I drove out to Darrowby, I wouldn't mind having a last look at Benjamin. It was a fanciful name for a small farmer's dog, and I never really found out how he had acquired it. But after all, he was an unlikely breed for such a setting a massive old English sheepdog who would have looked more in place decorating the lawns of a stately home than following his master around Arno's stony pastures. He was a classical example of the walking heart rug, and it took a second look to decide which end of him was which. But when you did manage to locate his head, you found two of the most benevolent eyes manageable glinting through the thick fringe of hair. Benjamin was in fact too friendly at times, especially in winter when he had been strolling in the farmyard mud and showed his delight at my arrival by planting his huge feet on my chest. He did the same thing to my car, too, usually just after I had washed it. Smearing clay lavishly over windows and bodywork while exchanging pleasantries with Sam inside, when Benjamin made a mess of anything, he did it right. 
but I had to interrupt my musings when I reached the last stage of my journey. And as I hung on to the kicking, jerking wheel and listened to the creaking and groaning of springs and shock observers, the thought forced its way into my mind, as it always did around here, that it cost us money to come to Mrs. Summersgill's farm. There could be no profit from the visit because this vicious track must knock out at least five pounds of the value of the car on every trip. Since Arnold did not have a car himself, he saw no reason why he should interfere with the primable state of his road. Prim evil. In other words, all beaten up road. It was simply a six-foot strip of earth and rock, and it wound twisted for an awful long way. The trouble was that to get to the farm, you had to descend into a deep valley before climbing through a wood towards the house. I think going down was worse because the vehicle hoovered ag- agonously at the top of each ridge before plunging into the yawning ruts below. And each time, listening to the unyielding stone grating on slump and exhaust banging up rock up against the carriage, I tried to stop myself working on the damage in pounds, shillings, and pence. And when, at last, mouth gapping, eyes popping, tires sending the sharp pebbles flying, I ground my way upward in bottom gear over the last few yards leading to the house. I was just surprised to see Arnold waiting for me there alone. It was unusual to see him without Benjamin. He must have read my questioning look because he jerked his thumb over his shoulder. He's in the house, sir, he grunted, and his eyes were anxious. I got out of the car and looked at him for a moment as he stood there in a typical attitude, wide shoulders back, head high. I have called him old, and indeed he was over 70. But the features beneath the woolen tammy which he always wore pulled down over his ears were clean and regular and the tall figure lean and straight. He was a fine-looking man and must have been handsome in his youth, yet he had never married. I often felt there was a story behind that, but he seemed content to live here alone. A bit of a hermit, as they said in the village, alone, that is, except for Benjamin. As I followed him into the kitchen, he casually shooed out a couple of hands who had been perching on a dusty dresser. Then I saw Benjamin and pulled up with a jerk. This big dog was sitting quite motionless by the side of the table, and this time the eyes behind the overhanging hair were big and liquid with fright. He appeared to be too terrified to move, and when I saw his leg, his foreleg, I couldn't blame him. Arnold had been right after all. It was indeed sticking out with a vengeance at an angle which made my heart give a quick double thud, a complete lateral dislocation of the elbow the radius projecting away out from the humerus at an almost impossible obliquity. I swallowed carefully. When did this happen, Mr. Summergill? Ah, uh, just an hour since, he tugged wearily at his strange headgear. Ah, uh, I was changing the cows into another field, and ah, Benjamin likes 
uh, to have a nip at their heels when he's behind them. Well, he did it once over too often, and one of them lashed out and got him on the leg with a big kick. I see. My mind was racing. This thing was grotesque. I had never seen anything like it. In fact, 30 years later, I still haven't seen anything like it. How on earth was I going to reduce the thing away up here in the hills? By the look of it, I would need general anesthesia and a skill assistant. Poor old lad, I said, resting my hand on the shaggy head as I tried to think, what are we going to do about it? And what are we going to do with you? The tail whisked along the flags in reply, and the mouth opened in a nervous panting, giving a glimpse of flawlessly white teeth. Arno cleared his throat. Can you put him right, upright? Well, it was a good question. An airy answer might give the wrong impression, yet I didn't want to worry him with my doubts. It would be a mammoth task to get the enormous dog down to Dorby. He nearly filled the kitchen, never mind my little car, and with the legs sticking out, with Sam already in re residence, and would I be able to get the joint back in place when I got him there? And even if I did manage it, I would still have to bring him all the way back up here. It would just about take care of the rest of the day. Gently, I passed my fingers over the dislocated joint and searched my memory for details of the anatomy of the elbow. For the leg to be in position, the processus and anconils must have been completely disintegrated from the supracondylite fossa where it normally laid. And to get back, the joint would have to be flexed until the anconils was clear of the epicondyles. Now let's see, I checked and I murmured and I thought to myself, if I had this dog anesthesia on the table, I would have to get hold of him like this, I thought. I grasped the leg just above the elbow and began to move the radius slowly upwards where it shouldn't normally be. Benjamin gave me a quick glance and turned his head away a gesture typically of good-natured dogs, conveying the message that he was going to put up with whatever I thought it was necessary to do. I flexed the joint still further until I was sure the anconius was clear, then carefully ro rotated the radius and ulna inwards. Yes, yes, I muttered again. This must be about the right position, but my... So Lick Lokoi was interrupted, my thought pattern. By a sudden movement of the bones under my hands, a springing, flicking sensation. I looked incredulously at the leg. It had pulled back itself into the joint. It was perfectly straight. Benjamin, too, seemed unable to take it in right away because he peered cautiously around through the shaggy curtain before lowering his nose and sniffing around the elbow. Then he seemed to realize all was well and ambled and got up and moved over to his master. He was perfectly sound, not a trace of a limp. A slow smile spread over Arnold's face. You mend them, him. You mend them. Huh. Looks like it, Mr. Summergill. I try to keep my voice casual, but I felt like cheering 
or bursting into hysterical laughter. I had only been making an examination, feeling things out a little, and the joint had popped back in place. A glorious accident. Hey, well, that's grand, the farmer said. Isn't it, ah, lad? He bent and tickled Benjamin's ear. I could have been disappointed by this laconic reception of my performance, but I realized it was a compliment to me that he wasn't surprised that I, James Herod, his vet, should effortlessly produce a miracle when it was required. A theater full of cheering students would have rounded off the incident, or it would be nice to do this kind of thing to some millionaire's animal in a crowded drawing room. But it never happened that way. I looked around the kitchen at the cluttered table, the pile of unwashed crockery in the sink, a couple of Arnold's ragged shirts drying before the fire, and I smiled to myself. This was sort of a setting in which I usually pulled off my spectacular cures. The only spectator here, apart from Arnold, were the two hands who made their way back on the dresser, and they didn't seem particularly impressed. Well, I'll be getting back down the hill, I said, and Arnold walked with me across the yard to the car. I hear you're off to join up, he said, as I put my hand on the door. Yes, I'm on my way tomorrow, Mr. Somersville. Tomorrow, eh? He raised his eyebrows. Yes, to London. Ever been there? Nay, nay, he damned the woolen cap quiver as he shook his head. They be no good to me. I laugh. Why do you say that? Well, now, I'll tell you. He scratched his chin ruminatively. Eh, no bout. No, but when once at Branton, England, and there was enough, I could walk on the street. I couldn't walk on the street. Couldn't walk. Nay, there were so many people about. I take big steps and little uns, then big steps and little uns again. Couldn't get going. I had often seen Arnold stalking over his heels with the long, even stride of the hillman with nothing on his way, and I knew exactly what he meant. Big steps and little uns. That put it perfectly. I started the engine and wave as he moved away. The old man raised a hand. Take care, lad, he murmured. I spotted Benjamin's nose just peeping around the kitchen door. Any other time he would have been out with his master to see me off the premises. But it had been a strange day for him, culminating with my descending on him and mauling his leg about. He wasn't taking any more chances. I drove gingerly down through the wood and before starting up the track of the other side, I stopped the car and got out with Sam leaping eagerly after me. That was my own personal dog. This was a little lost valley in the hills, a green cleft cut off from the wild country above. One of the bonuses in a country vet life is that he sees these hidden places apart from the old Arno. Nobody ever came down here. Not even the postman who left the infrequent mail in a box at the top of the track. And nobody saw the blazing scarlets and golds of the autumn trees, nor hear the busy clucking and murmuring of the beck among its clean washed stones. 
I walked along the water's edge, watching the little fish darting and flitting in the cool depths. In the spring, these banks were bright with primrose, and in May, a great sea of bluebells flowed among the trees. But today, though the sky was an untroubled blue, the clean air was touched with the sweetness of the dying year. I climbed a little way up the hillside and sat down among the bracken, now fast turning to bronze. Sam, as his he as was his way, flopped by my side, and I ran a hand over the silky hair of his ears. The far side of the valley rose steeply to where, above the gleaming ridge of limestone cliff, I could just see the sunlit rim of the moor. I looked back to where the farm chimney sent a thin tendril of smoke from behind the brow of the hill, and it seems that the episode with Benjamin, my last job in veterinary practice before I left Darby, was a fitting epilogue. A little triumph, intensely satisfying by no means world-shaking. Like all other little triumphs and disasters was make up a veteran surgeon life but go unnoticed by the world. Last night, after Helen had packed my bag, I had pushed Black's veterinarian dictionary in among the shirts and socks. It was a bulky volume, but I had been gripped momentarily by a fear that I may forget the things I had learned and conceive on an impulse the scheme of reading a page or two each day to keep my memory fresh. And here, among the bracken, the thought came back to me that it was the greatest good fortune not only to be fascinated by animals, but to know about them. Suddenly, the knowing became a precious thing. I went back and opened the car door. Sam jumped on the seat, and before I got in, I looked away down in the other direction from the house to the valley's mouth, where the hills parted to give a glimpse of the plain below. and the endless wash of pale tints, the gold of the stubble, the dark smudges of wood, the molten greens of the pasture land were like a perfect watercolor. I found myself staring greedily, greedily as if for the first time at the scene which had so often lifted my heart, the great, white, clean, blow face of Yorkshire. The white, clean, blown face of Yorkshire. I would come back to it all, I thought, as I drove away, back to my work. How was it that book had described it? My heart, honest and fine profession. I would come back to it all, I thought, as I drove away, back to my work. How was it that the book had described it? My heart, honest and fine profession. James Harriet goes on to say, I keep telling my young assistants that they must not become frustrated when receiving no credit for doing a brilliant job because they will often get disproportionate praise for something easy. It is a strange thing, but I have reduced several dislocated elbows during my career, and in every case, there was only one unimpressed person to see it. A pity because it does look so good, and yet this single-handed piece of work seemed to 
epitomized my life before entering the RAF. It was a very fitting last visit. RAF is in England. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, number 22. Oh, Benjamin, what a story. And I believe a lot of natural curists do pop in the joints of the animals back in place and humans too. Thank you so much. I love you for listening with me and hearing it. We'll see you on the next story.